0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 98 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show-by-show show from the beginning. My name is Trevor game, joined as always by the co-host Matt Feuerstein. Matt, this, we finally made it to another one of those milestone episodes. I guess every episode recently has been a milestone episode, since so this is technically part of Ring of Honor's milestone series. But this is one of those episodes where had this episode in mind since the start. Like, Vaughn, if we got here? This is going to be a big episode.
1: Oh, I thought you meant that it was a milestone episode because it's episode 98 and your favorite musicians are 98 Degrees, the, the <laughs> famous group um, featuring Nick Lachey. And I, I, know, I know how much you love Nick Lachey.
0: I thought you were going to say 98, the last year I, I was happy. <laughs> Mm, Uh, no
1: you were not happy in 98 don't even try it
0: (laughs) we probably met each other online what like only a couple years after that 99 i feel like
1: i feel like by 99 we had at least crossed paths even if we didn't consider us people that we knew personally
0: yeah Yeah. uh the young days but but it's
1: ironically not the happy days no they were they were still they were still tough you know Growing up's not easy these days, you know what I mean? Or those days? Those days were not these days. Anyone still (laughs) listening? (laughs) Uh,
0: And ironically, like, uh, well, not ironically, but just it's funny that we talk about like, oh, '98. Those were days. I was thinking, oh, those were so long ago. We're talking about 2006. That's now at a point where that's long ago. The show we're covering today. So yes, the sad part about 2006
1: is we were already grown ass adults. That's and it was a really long time ago. It just means we've been adults for a long time, and that sucks. Uh,
0: not fun at all. But what was fun was Supercard of Honor, which took place March thirty first, 2006 at the Frontier Fieldhouse Spoil- in Chicago. Spoiler Ridge.
1: alert. You said it was fun. Spoilers.
0: <laughs> spoiler. This is not going to get a negative review. But um, at the Frontier Fieldhouse in Chicago Ridge, Illinois, from a report crowd of 1,200 fans. So – Matt, I think this is the first time I ever went to this as a source, but, um, Carrie Silken, the former owner of Ring of Honor and recent recipient of a Chris Jericho beatdown that he knows sold completely on AEW, uh, he has a podcast he does on and off again. They do it in kind of a season format where they'll do a bunch of episodes and take some time off with, uh, current Ring of Honor commentator Ian Recaboni. It's called Last Stop Penn Station. There is a, he tells a lost story. It's just not about Ring of Honor, it's just about his crazy life, but he also, has some Ring of Honor tidbits here there. And there was something he mentioned in about this show, which I thought was really interesting, especially if you are a through the years, if you are a deep vein thrombozo, as we like to call you, fans of the show. Um, it, you you If you've listened to all the episodes and known some of the stuff we've talked about, this is re- struck me as really interesting. This is Kerry talking about this event, Supercard of Honor, on the podcast. He says... Under my ownership, these, this triple shot, were some of our best shows. And then he went on to say Matt out, and I quoted it verbatim. This is the only weekend where we actually had a solid profit all time. And, like, Ian's, like, like almost wondering, like, are you joking? He's like, no, like, this is literally, like, these two shows in Chicago were the only time that when I owned the company that we ever turned a solid profit. And I have to assume he means a solid profit when you just factor in live gate and live merchandise sales, because you have to think of a show like Joe versus Kobashi, which sold a ton of DVDs. If you couldn't turn a profit on that, but, um, Kerry continues talking about, like he was knowing how impressive that was also with this show, because he was saying, you know, like this was not a cheap show to book because it was in the Midwest. So a lot of flights. And he also said, quote, the dragon gate guys don't come cheap. Um, And yeah, he mentions that the merch sold really well. And he says it took that kind of crowd to really make some money. And if you've been listening to our show, you have followed the saga of so many times the word Ring of R would put in its early years to both the Pro Wrestling Torch and the Wrestling Observer would be somewhere between 400 and 500 fans. If we do that many fans for a live show, we basically break even, and then all the profit is made through DVD sales. And here you have Kerry Silkin basically saying that it took two of the biggest attendances he ever had to turn a solid profit. Yeah, so
1: I'm guessing the break even was a little bit higher than they made it out to be. Um, Yeah, okay, so I mean he said – in his ownership of the company. Now, I don't know if that means like his full ownership or when he first got involved, because he first got involved in what like mid '03 ish. Did if does, does that sound right? Like when he first
0: yeah, it was um, right after. Um, I, if I remember, it was Mike Johnson r- r- wrote in kind of his eulogy of uh God what, passing his name. Uh, God yeah, um that. Because he was putting over Doug Gentry for being the guy that kind of hooked Ring of Honor up with Kerry Sulkin, they they said, uh, I believe Mike Johnson said that that if it wasn't for Kerry Sulkin, Ring of Honor's last show would have been Night of Champions in two thousand three, which was when uh, Joe won the title. So yeah, that yeah. would have been a few just a few months into two thousand three, he comes in.
1: Right. So so yeah, so that's when he comes in, and when he finally fully gets ownership of the company, I don't think it's really till like mid two thousand and four, right. So I guess it's possible that those shows in 2002 did have like 400, 500 break-evens, and I don't think they ever did 400 and 500 in 2002, right, from what I recall at the yeah. Movie Rec Center. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that a lot of these horror shows lost money uh, at least pre-DVD sales.
0: Yeah, which again completely flies in the face of what they have been telling us the the public, which is basically, oh, most of these shows break even on the live gate and
1: yeah. But we we were always very skeptical of that.
0: Although I will say the break-even point or, or make a profit point was probably less than the crowds they drew for these shows because, like I just said, like at Carrie noted, even these shows probably cost more than the average shows to book with the amount of talent they were using. That's fair all too. Fly, all, They were even flying in guys like you know Julius Smokes, you know some of the managers they wouldn't always bring to the Midwest. Like they were bringing everyone for the show—the women, everybody—and
1: of course they, you know, like like you mentioned before, the uh, the six guys from Dragon Gate. Which, yeah, you know that's you know even if you can get one guy for a pretty good deal, there's six of them.
0: But that's something also, I guess that doing a triple shot allows you to do a bit more. Because I know, like with uh, stuff like Chikar's King of Trios or or PWG's Battle of Los Angeles, which has sometimes been like a three day thing. The idea of if we book a double or a triple shot, one of our biggest talent costs is travel. Well, you kind of you kind of spread out some of the travel costs you're going well we then get to book these guys for three shows instead of buying this this expensive plane ticket and getting one show out of them so i imagine that was probably some of the logic too like okay we're gonna really splurge for the dragon gate guys for six of them but we're gonna get three shows out of them if we fly them all down here
1: yeah definitely i mean it's it's very smart and i i think it probably paid off pretty well
0: yeah, and again, we, I think we mentioned on the last show, but I think even though this was not the first time Ravon kind of piggybacked on WrestleMania weekend, I feel like just reading back on like the media coverage of reaction to these attendances and all that, this was really the weekend, starting with this show and the next show, that kind of did a big flashing neon sign to the wrestling world to start like, hey – it's a good idea to just run wherever WrestleMania is the days before WrestleMania happens. Like, as you yeah. were talking about last time, once they start to move to stadiums, particularly, you know, WrestleMania becomes this giant kind of destination event every year where you're going to almost guaranteed to get people from around the world, all sorts of stuff. But
1: yeah, so yeah, they had done it for in 2004. They did at our best. And of course, the next show, they're playing off that name. It's going to be called better than our best. But um, but yeah, like that was a one off thing. and. It was like you know, it got people's attention, but it wasn't like this all out extravaganza that, you know, everybody was talking about the way this double shot or triple shot if you want to count Detroit was. And so like, yeah, the, the tradition really did begin here. And, you know, ROH, I think, ran WrestleMania weekend shows pretty much every year for many, many years after this consecutively. And I don't know if it was by the next year, but but within a few years, there were a lot of companies doing it. I know, like more Chicago-oriented groups did it in 2006 too, right? Like, ob- obviously, IWA Mid South did it. Um, they ran some shows that weekend. I don't, rem- I don't think Shimmer did, but I-, I don't remember for sure. Did they? Do you- did Shimmer run uh, WrestleMania
0: weekend? My, my memory of that stuff is off. I was just going to say, I think the only like notable, at least for people like us, like indie that ran other than Ring of Honor here re- on this WrestleMania weekend in 2006 was a. Uh, IWA itself the next day ran, like, an afternoon show, and that that was the one that had the famous low-key low key necro-butcher necro, match. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, I mean, there wasn't really many companies, like, taking advantage. Especially, again, one of the advantages would be if you could run those shows, you look at the WrestleMania week shows now, where indies kind of, again, you're, you're saving on travel costs because so much talent is in the town, you don't have to really pay for trans. You know, they probably could have gotten a bun- a bunch of these other indies probably could have gotten, you know, an extra show out of some of these guys and a lot of talent in here just from these ring of, ring of honor shows alone but
1: yeah i know i um i don't blame any indie for running wrestlemania weekend i think it's a smart thing to do but there is some nostalgia i have for the day when there was just like a few really special shows that everybody talked about and not just like a thousand different indie uh- shows
0: I agree. And also you're not getting, I don't think you're getting the best out of the guys because so often you hear these stories. It's, you know, guys, some of these guys are working like five or six matches in two or three days. And sometimes you hear these stories about all oh, like they had to like drive across town and they barely got to the show or like they're working their match. And it has to go on early so that they can get to the other booking they have for that evening. Like at that point, you're not, you can't possibly be in a position to put on your very best work because you know, stamina just the frenzy you know you're not just sitting in one locker room all day kind of getting ready you're just rushing everywhere just to kind of take as many bookings as you possibly can fit in and
1: some shows are like early in the morning and some shows are super late at night like aren't there always you know in the recent recent years at least pre-pandemic i don't know if they've gone back to it these these big shows that'll start at like midnight on, on uh for some of these indies nowadays
0: yeah. I mean, I think one of those Joey Janela spring breaks, I remember like watching that online at home and I'm feeling tired. I think I heard someone saying like, Oh, there's a couple people like falling asleep here, like during the main, like, like maybe like during great sauce. Okay. Versus Joey Janelle. Not that, not a, like a slag on the match, but just again. And uh, again, yeah, that's the other thing to think about when you run so many shows, as opposed to this ring of honor show, you know, we'll get to it later, but in the main event, people are talking about the idea of, Oh, maybe getting a little burnt out at the end. Like, You watch these WrestleMania week shows now where some of these fans, you know, by the time they get to that main show at night, that might be their second or even third show they're attending that day. And and for some
1: some of them, even more than that, like, I I mean, I, I had friends stay with me uh, for WrestleMania weekend uh, for uh, WrestleMania 35 in 2019, which, you know, was in like, you know, New New York, New Jersey. And I, they definitely on some of the days went to like, like four shows like i I seem to recall so yeah it's and then we'll get up early the next morning and go back for more so i didn't do that like it's just i just don't have it in me to do that but i um but yeah it's not like there are there are some nuts out there that are willing to do it (laughs) but when you talk about um you know when you talk about like the stamina of the wrestlers like i remember even watching this and being like you know how does brian danielson do this match and then another one the next night and that's like two matches because he By his standards, not saying he took it easy at Dragon Gate Challenge, but like by his standards, he kind of did, you know, but it was like certainly on this show and the following show, he sure didn't. And he wasn't the only one, you know, those Dragon Gate guys also definitely in the Generation Next guys all, you know, worked really hard all the nights. And they just kept coming back for more, and that's just three. Nowadays, you know, like you said, some of these guys work with what? Like, what is like the maximum that some of these guys work nowadays? Guys, guys, and women, like uh, I'm not sex, sure, but like seven, eight matches over a couple
0: days. I mean, I mean, again, it depends how you know how hard you want to hustle, but you, you can you can do a lot on some of these shows if you have a certain amount of name value that I'm probably are willing to like work at a certain rate, you know, um. It's funny you mention that. I guess the last thing about this I was going to say is just, you know, you are right that, like, people, it almost seems, in some ways it seems quaint that we're talking about, oh, like, three shows in a row, that's crazy. Like, when WrestleMania weekend, that's way different, like, way more than one show a night for three nights in a row. But I can also see, like, a different segment of people going, like, looking at us, knowing that, like, WWE is scaled back house shows and AEW guys working there who are getting paid literally complain about like not getting enough work like people going wow grandpa when you were young there was literally like a wrestler's work three days in a row like instead of once a week like it's it's crazy how much things have changed in just 16 years where when when i when i was coming up like i remember there were some people going like wrestlers who just work friday saturday and sunday you know they're not going to develop the right way because they need to be like in the old territory days where they're working five days a week on a loop and now like working friday saturday and sunday for a lot of wrestlers, i think would seem like kind of like a packed schedule
1: yeah i mean you know i guess just things are ever changing i it doesn't seem like we're ever going to go backwards um even if you know some of the aspects of the old ways were better and i'm sure definitely some of them are worse um, But, you know, I think it's just a lot of just the business, just like everything, keeps evolving and adapting. And that's why we need to bring back Evolve. Right, Gabe?
0: <laughs> Come on, Gabe.
1: Under that, the WWE banner, let's do it.
0: I was going to say that ship seems to have sailed, but may- yeah, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe um, everything
1: old is new again.
0: <laughs> so um, the Observer… I mean, little... You know,
1: just sorry to keep like tangent, but like no, it on. would be funny if… You know, WWE brought back Evolve, and it became much more, like, robust than AEW's version of ROH.
0: (laughs) I mean... I mean at this point, I mean with Ring of Honor not having TV, it wouldn't be hard. Like if you just had like a exactly, weekly yeah. show on the network or I guess peak off now.
1: As of now, I- as of now, in, you know, as of, as of this recording, all ROH and AEW is is a bunch of titles on the regular AEW shows and then like a pay-per-view once every four to six months. Uh, it's not really a proper promotion or even like offshoot promotion in any way. So if they wanted to do that with Evolve, they could.
0: Um, going to The Observer, Dave had a quick note about this particular show. He wrote, Jamie Noble, Rene Dupre, and Paul London all went to this Ring of Honor show in Chicago. CM Punk had said he was going to go there, but he wasn't there. Matt, this is the craziest CM Punk controversy <laughs> I've ever heard. Why Why was he not at the show? We have to find out. This he was, was getting ready to honor-
1: be one of John Cena's gangsters during his entrance.
0: I mean, I could – I mean, I, I don't know how much prep that takes, but I, I mean, I could definitely see if they if they wanted to do, like, any kind of, like, rehearsal the day before. I mean – Rehearsal this the two days and before. they had to, like,
1: fit him, although it's not like those gangster suits really fit so well for all those guys, <laughs> but – yeah.
0: I would love, like – oh, you could have seen the Dragon Gate 6, Man, but I had to get fit for a for – a, for a zoot suit, Matt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but – um. We open the show, as usual for the Milestone series, pick up right where the last show ended with a cliffhanger, in this case with Jim Cornette backstage having just got off the phone with a mystery informant who has told him that who – the identity of the mysterious person who knocked out his tooth in that huge me- melee at a few shows where the wrestlers were trying to throw um, Necro Butcher and Chris Hero out of the locker room after they invaded the show – Cornette says he was just told it was low key. He calls low key, a little boy and says, Key is always making ridiculous demands, whining and crying. And Jim adds, I told ring of honor before that. I didn't think they needed low key to begin with. He says, now I know we don't need him. Cornette says, Key disfigured him carelessly hitting him by accident in that brawl. When he was trying to strike anybody else. And as a result, Cornette says, (laughs) I can't believe this. Cornette says, as a result, of Loki, let me be clear Matt, accidentally hitting Jim Cornette, Jim Cornette gives Loki a lifetime ban from Ring of Honor. He then adds that's life plus 99 years or until his tooth grows back. So well, this is the first of two instances on this show of Cornet trying to do something that he was known for, and I appreciate when Rayvanna tries to do this of trying to give everything a storyline explanation. But both times on the show, it failed. And like, I-, I will just say this: think about it this way. It makes Cornet look like an asshole. Where Loki, he- he, I think, you know, Cornet even acknowledges Loki did not try and hit him. It was an accidental strike in a wild melee, and then or melee. I, let, let's also. It, either go, way
1: is fine, pronunciation yeah, uh, wise. Yes, uh,
0: but Matt, here's the big thing. L- let's think about this. Recently, just a few shows earlier, Homicide tried to murder Colt Cabana by pouring draino drain cleaner down his throat to the point where Colt has since acted like he has PTSD, and you know, I, I could have died. All this stuff, and like. Cornette suspended both of them for what? Like one or two shows <laughs> in storyline? And by you know, Loki accidentally knocks out one of Cornette's teeth. Lifetime ban.
1: It's funny because I misremembered this because I had always remembered it as like, Cornette finds out that Loki attacked him and knocked out his teeth. And then it would make more sense. And they could have just said that. What would have been the harm in saying that? Right? Yeah. So it's – yeah, it makes Cornette seem way worse – but I guess you could argue they were planting the seeds for Cornette's heel turn over the summer if they were thinking that far ahead. You know, which I don't know if Gabe was thinking that far ahead, but it does play into like that, yeah, that is a dick move by Cornette. Not that, you know, Loki the character deserved the benefit of the doubt. But um the other thing that stood out to me, like of all the angles where someone says there's a lifetime suspension. I think this one (laughs) came really close because October 1st, 2022, Loki was never back in Ring of Honor as of this recording. Um, Now, I guess, ROH, to the extent that it exists, I guess he could end up coming back. You never know.
0: Well, I I will give – I mean, you know this, Matt. I will just say I have talked to somebody within AEW, someone pretty high up, Pretty high and, up, huh? <laughs> and literally asked them if they could book Lowkey versus Christopher Daniels versus Brian Danielson one more time, the original Ring of Honor main event. Pretty
1: high up, and you thought they could book this match, huh? Interesting.
0: And, uh, they sounded like they were. The, the, the chances of booking Loki were slim. So, well, um, you
1: know, I'm just saying it's th- it's still physically possible that it could happen. Physically possible. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so I don't want to don't want to say anything in absolute terms. But it seems like this lifetime suspension for this whoopsie that Loki apparently made uh, has held.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It is crazy that it is you know unintentionally because you know there have been multiple ownerships since this happened, but yet. You have to think if Loki really had wanted to come back for like a show, if he had been willing to play ball, like I have to think he could have gotten a shot somewhere with Ring of Honor, like even for a one-off, like just like an anniversary show, or something. Because he has, such, I mean, he's the first champion, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit too like Loki's stock dropped a little bit after he left ROH. Like you know, he did some good stuff, and he was like good in TNA, and and he you know had a little run in WWE where he had a couple of good matches and stuff, but it's not like he was ever the talk of the wrestling world anywhere out after this, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not like he was like this, like, oh, we got to get low key back. Like I bet he would have been good, but there wasn't a buzz to get low key back really at any point that I can remember.
0: Uh, next, we get a highlight video of the Brian Danielson, Roderick strong feud, hyping their main event match on tonight's show. It's another highlight package that just feels like it goes on forever. Like I feel bad kind of criticizing these because clearly whoever did these the recent video packages like this one and the Joe Daniels one we saw on the last show put a lot of work into getting a ton of clips but the problem is it's like they got so many clips and they just decide we're using them all and it just goes on and on and on but Dimin- it, it, diminishing
1: it, returns i did think yeah. this one was a little bit less over the top than the one the night before like it was a little bit more yeah. palatable like and i thought it was better but yeah it did suffer from the same exact concepts
0: conceptual problem <laughs> And uh, we then cut to Chris Hero interacting with a group of fans outside the building in a segment that an on-screen graphic tells us took place earlier today. Uh, Hero gets into it with a couple of sassy, badass women, the only way I can describe it, who ain't taking a shit. One tries to actually slap Hero. Hero, she, he, she misses, and then Hero says, Miss me, miss me, now you gotta kiss me, which I have probably not heard since I was like eight years old, which was like a throwback line. And then she then flips Hero off. Hero mocks the crowd's intelligence and is quickly cut off as we go to the next segment. When you say Matt, quickly
1: cut off, like that's a understatement. They cut, oh, aw- he wasn't cut off. The, sh- the clip cut away in the mid sentence. It was very strange. It reminded me a lot of those early, um, hit squad clips from the first few ROH shows where they're just like outside talking to people on a bus. Like, but it was, I did think it was very strange that they cut away from him mid sentence. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah, it's almost like, did something else happen or something? Like, yeah. I, I get the I, – I, we should ask somebody, like, were those women, like, just really fans? Because they were very charismatic and not afraid to, like – I mean, did they tell them like, hey, try and slap Chris and we're going to shoot the second or because they were very bold and, and, and entertaining. So
1: I bet you there was that was probably the extent of it. If there was anything more to it than them just being fans with somebody like right before just being like, hey, you know, like really give it back to him or something like that.
0: You know? Yeah. Uh, next, we go backstage to join Blood Generation. Uh, Shima tells us Dragon Gate is the cutting edge of pro wrestling. Just a very quick segment.
1: I love I love these Blood Generation promos.
0: They're they're just fun. We've seen way worse from people that do not speak that 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 speak English as a first language. So, you know, yeah, kudos to them that their charisma comes across even with the language barrier. And it's mainly it's
1: mainly a a SEMA promo, Blake. But yeah, but yeah, but those other guys, you know, they're they're looking cool in the background.
0: Then we get the top five rankings, the same one we've gotten the last couple days. I'm uh, assuming uh, that
1: the one the next show will be different because it is officially April. Starting on the very next I mean, DVD, even though be, even now, though it's it only will, one day later?
0: It will be exciting if it is, because as of now, it is still five Samoa Joe, four Alex Shelley, three Christopher Daniels, two Jimmy Yang, one Roderick Strong... And now we finally go to Inside the Ring live for the event where Bobby Cruz welcomes the crowd. Cruz announces that due to a concussion suffered last night, Colt Cabana is unable to compete this evening because he was scheduled for an official match with Homicide on this night. That gets a lot of booze from the hometown Chicago crowd. Bobby then introduces Commissioner Jim Cornette, who comes out with a baseball bat and BJ Whitmer, who is walking with crutches and his newly injured foot from the last show is in some kind of cast. Uh, Cornette gets in the ring. He asks the crowd if there's anyone here who has never seen ring of honor in person before which gets a pretty loud reaction he then asks if there's anyone who has seen ring of honor before and loved it so much they came back tonight that gets an even larger pop uh he tells the older fans to welcome the new fans make them feel at home and then Cornette says, this is the biggest two night stand in Ring of Honor history. He alludes to WrestleMania happening, you know, on Sunday, which gets a lot of boos actually, which I have a feeling, again, that that's something that would change. Like if you, if you allude to WrestleMania now and on most indie shows, you know, you probably get a lot of people cheering because, or at least not booing. Um, Cornette says that WrestleMania is like two dogs screwing on the side of the road. You have to watch it for a minute. Um, I would say you don't have to do that, but anyway. The funniest
1: uh, thing, the funniest part of that is, I feel like in this era, like the mid two thousands, WrestleMania was usually like pretty good, whereas I think in a lot of like the twenty tens and twenty twenties, like it was maybe more the twenty tens and twenty twenties, but it was often like boring. Like so, it's just weird that like the there was more animosity toward WWE shows back then when. The events were of higher wrestling
0: quality, in my opinion. That's a, anyway, that's a fascinating point I didn't think of, especially because when you think about like, there, yeah, there was a lot of. We'll get to a commentary thing, even animosity. Like the wrestling in WD was way better back then. I would, I would say, in my opinion,
1: at least, at, and, at least on the big shows. I don't know about week to week because I don't really, you know, I, you know, maybe I'll start giving it another chance again. But I, um, like. Uh, the, the big shows, like, I watched a lot of the WrestleMania, I've, I've seen, like, every WrestleMania, and I feel pretty strongly that the, the 2000s, like, from, let's say, 2001 through, like, 2010-ish, you know, there were a couple of stinkers in there, but that was the best era for WrestleMania in the ring, like, by far. So, it's, it's just weird to, um, yeah, it's just weird to see how everyone treats it like it was, like, I don't know, like, hokey Hulk Hogan shit, when it, it really wasn't. Like, it It was often pretty good.
0: Yeah, maybe it's just standards change. Maybe a lot of these fans got run off. I mean, who knows? But either way, Cornette definitely puts over a ring of honor. He riles the crowd up. Uh, Cornette says BJ Weber has a broken angle, b- a broken ankle. This is i uh, yeah, I'm about to describe a broken ankle. <laughs> and he says, but it didn't happen as part of the wrestling matches. It happened in the parking lot after the show, when CZW wrestlers jumped him and slammed a door on his ankle. Jim says BJ will be out for weeks. So before I get to the rest of this, I just have to stop right there. I, I just said, er, a few minutes ago, Cornette, like tried to sell, explain two different angles. And did, this is the, by far the biggest offender. I I, I get, like, in wrestling, the classic wrestling logic is whenever someone gets legit hurt, say a heel did it to try and transfer that legit injury into heel heat, that's great logic, except when everyone just saw the guy break his ankle, and they know exact like, it's insane that they tried to sell this as... Oh, he didn't break his ankle when he, like, did one of the most notable botched moves in Ring of Honor history and literally was clutching his ankle with Gabe running to him right after the match and saying, my ankle's fucked. No, it happened when the CCW wrestlers slammed his leg in a car door. Like,
1: come on. Here's how much of an ROH loyalist I am. I know that Jim Cornette was not involved in the booking of ROH at this point, and I know that Gabe Sapolsky was the booker of ROH, and yet I'm still like, you know, I bet Gabe didn't think of that. I bet Cornette told him to say (laughs) that (laughs) because it's so, like, old school. But, like, yeah, obviously it's ridiculous. Like, you know, it was like anybody who saw the show the night before, which is most people watching on DVD, I'm going to assume, or at least a high percent of them, would know have seen or at least know about that Jimmy Jacobs spot. Um so yeah, that's very silly, and comes across hokey.
0: Yeah, um, Jim says, uh, B- "Oh, I already said that." BJ will be out in a few weeks. Cornet then introduces his baseball bat Velma Lou in case CZW wrestlers want to start trouble this weekend. Corret then says he went to the seedy parts of Chicago. He asked Gary Hart where the peep shows were, and he found the two roughest, toughest hardcore wrestlers in the city of Chicago to give them a chance to show their skills here in Ring of Honor. He introduces them, and out come two masked men with plunder, coming out to the classic CZW theme. One of them is actually holding a broom. It's not Kenny Omega. Uh, Cornette wants them to help clear up the misconception that hardcore wrestlers are secretly gay. <sighs> um, he then makes a blowjob joke, and then he makes a joke about the difference between a hardcore wrestler's sister and a rooster. He says a rooster will say, says cock a doodle do, a hardcore wrestler's sister says any cock will do. Um, Cornet then says he asked the Ring of Honor wrestlers if they want to wrestle these two hardcore wrestlers. Some of the Ring of Honor wrestlers were really scared, but he found two guys that were willing to do it. Cornet brings out Samoa Joe and Adam Pearce. That gets our first, I guess, technically official match. Adam Pierce and Samoa Joe defeated hardcore wrestlers 1 and 2, who I should note were Pele Primo and Rhett Titus under masks in 58 seconds when Pierce pinned hardcore wrestler 1 after he got hit with a Samoa Joe muscle buster and a top rope slash from Adam Pierce. Um, that is the segment. Matt, the crowd loved this segment. You know, I think there is way more bad than good to this. I don't think it ages well. I'm not just the gay the dumb gay joke, but just, we already talked about the BJ Whitmer thing and just the general vibe. It didn't lean too much into the Jim Cornette grandpa's joke book kind of material. And also I will say this is another, we've talked about this a lot. This is another one of those segments where of Honor kind of seems like the bad guy in the CCW, like the bully, like, like, instead of just, like, challenging the CCW wrestlers, they dress up a couple poor students and, like, have the wrestlers beat them up while, like, they mock them. Like, that feels like something the heel side of a feud would do.
1: It feels like something
0: WWE would do. Um, Yeah, no, this,
1: I mean, the crowd loves seeing Joe especially. And, but, like, to me, Joe being involved in this made Joe look really bad. Like, this sucked. Like, this is, like, was, like, this, the worst thing on an ROH DVD in a while. Probably since the Jade Chung stuff um that ended you know months earlier like yeah it had like the worst uh i mean Cornette you know had a lot of charisma he very well very good delivery but like the worst with the homophobia and like then the the dumb like dick jokes and all that stuff and then yeah like this is like it's like a dub a page out of the wwe playbook where they put out some poor schlub and they they have them get their asses kicked and it's like oh look these are the hardcore wrestlers and like yeah i don't know what they were trying to accomplish here other than just getting Joe out there at the beginning to kick ass. But like I feel like Joe should be above this stuff. Like someone should have been like, you know, this doesn't make us look good. And yeah, I think it's very weird to have a show like this right in the middle of like one of ROH's best runs that begins with something on the the lower end of stuff of segments that ROH has ever put on in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and I also don't like well, you know, Anytime Jim Cornette, they work this year where he kind of makes Joe or any big Ring of Honor star kind of seem like a subservient henchman to him. Right, like, like, you know, sometimes, like, if you want to put an Adam Pierce in that role, that's fine. But there are times in this feud where it feels like the feud isn't Ring of Honor versus CZW. It's Jim Cornette versus CZW. And the Ring of Honor guys are kind of just like his chess pieces to wager this battle. Like, just like, oh, I'm, I found a couple guys. Like, someone would chose the biggest star in the company. Yeah, and it's, you know, big, it's, it's
1: better. I mean, like, with the promo that Joe cut the night before. Was really good. And that should really be the voice that they're bringing against CZW, not Cornette's. Like, I get the impulse to make him the voice because he's one of the greatest talkers in wrestling history. But like, it just, it's just not the right, it's just not the right fit. I don't think like whatever. Like, I'm, I'm saying this and obviously the angle worked very well and it's a long time ago, but just from an artistic standpoint, as good as this whole thing was, I think Cornette. In a lot of situations, does bring it down. Um, By the way, you mentioned Grandpa's joke book. Keep in mind, Jim Cornette was forty
0: (laughs) four (laughs) here. I know. I guess the other thing he 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 was corny, no pun intended, from a very early age. Like, and um, the other thing I want to mention is during that one man squash, I actually have a note where uh, there's a moment where there's like a large like plastic tub for like or bucket or something for like plunder that the masked guys in the ring and pierce kicks it and it hits the handheld cam guy like right in the camera which is actually a really neat shot but this is going to be a bad night for uh ringside employees We'll, we'll get to later but i also like that we've talked about um the, the weird cognitive dissonance of, like, Jim Cornette always talked about, like, you know, Ring of Honor is not for hardcore with all these examples. Even Dave Meltzer was starting to pick up at this point because he wrote in his recap from the live notes, the first night opened with a Cornette promo claiming he was keeping a baseball bat with him at all times because he hated hardcore wrestling. I know there is irony there, Dave writes. Like, yeah, um, yeah you know, I'm going to fend off this hardcore wrestling with a weapon, but – uh, that brings us to the first real match of the night, a four-corner survival. Ricky Reyes defeated Delirious Flash Flanagan and Shane Hagedorn in six minutes, 54 seconds, when he made Delirious tap to the dragon sleeper. Uh, Matt, this was obviously continuing a storyline, like a little one-triple-shot storyline that uh, Warner, I guess I couldn't find it on the Wayback Machine because the Wayback Machine is really unreliable at this point, but I've seen from other reports that I If I remember he serves, the Rewander storyline during this period was them saying Delirious has to win basically a match on this triple shot or he's, you know, he, the classic game storyline of this guy's good, but he's not winning and he has to get a win sooner. He's going to be out of a job here and, you know. He's down to his last shot after this match. But what did you think about the match itself?
1: Yeah, and wasn't it also like that Hagedorn was sort of a last-minute replacement for Jimmy Jacobs, who was moved into the Joe match after Whitmer hurt himself? Is that correct?
0: Uh, Actually, I did not go back that deep. But that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, Jacobs moves up the card to make up for Whitmer. So, yeah, that makes sense, especially because this does not feel like the kind of match they would just slot a student in. So I I, I bet your memory is correct there.
1: And it's got to be tough for like you know a student. You know we could ask Shane, but like to to like be put into a four way match, you know, on a big show because I imagine that four ways in some ways are harder to put together because there's just a lot of different moving parts. So I thought that Haggardorn did a, a good job considering you know he he you know he's sort of put in the role to take a lot of Delirious's silliness and like sell how ridiculous it is, and I think he does a good job of that. Um, I um, the other thing very notable flash flanagan who was i don't think he's ever been in roh as flash flanagan right like wasn't he like he was what was he from uh,
0: slash venom Venom or something like that
1: and maybe something else too um maybe was he one of the weapons of mass destruction i I
0: think so in fact because yeah i think when i was looking at like the torture side they said this was slash i mean uh flash flanagan's debut in ring of honor but this is actually his i think his third ring of honor match just his first as himself yeah
1: yeah, and anyway, he's enormous compared to everybody else. Like, just so tall. Like that—that that was one of the biggest impressions that you get. And like, he—he's not taking Delirious' shit the way you know Hagridorn did. But um, you know, the, you know, they end up doing a lot of big moves, and we get a, a decent amount of stuff with Delirious versus uh, versus Reyes, which I guess makes sense because it's going to set up the match the night before or the night after, I should say. Where mm-hmm. you know, spoilers: Delirious beats Reyes, but um. You know, the way you look on this show, it feels like, you know, they haven't given up Reyes' push because he, uh, you know, he, he gets the win. But I guess it's more to set up Delirious beating him. As far as the match itself, I, I thought it had promise when it started. They, you know, Delirious at the beginning of these shows is always a lot of fun. I thought that the finishing stretch didn't really have like a lot of pop to it. I guess that sometimes these four ways can, but it didn't overstay its welcome. So I thought that it was. It was all right, you know, not not a particularly good match, not particularly memorable, but they they did all right, I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I thought this was average at best. I mean, it was watchable. Uh, the main thrust of the match was Delirious' comedy, very over here, you know, still fresh to the crowds. He was a guy on the rise at this point. The one notable spot I thought in this match was a. Uh, Hagedorn gets clotheslined over the top rope, and he, like, flips over the top rope and then lands on the apron, like, on the edge of the apron, knees first, which just looked like it sucked. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a guy, like, take, like, the Cactus Jack, like, kind of flip over the ropes, clothesline bump, taking it, not get it, giving it, and you land, instead of landing on your feet or landing on the floor, you just take it on your knees. You probably did not mean to do that. I was just like, man, I bet you that hurt a lot, but... Um, After the match, Reyes refuses to release the sleeper for a few seconds, and then Julius Smokes attacks Delirious, and then Reyes puts him back in the dragon sleeper for a little while longer. Uh, Reyes grabs the mic and he calls Delirious a fucking moron and tells him he doesn't belong here in Ring of Honor. He slaps him. And then
1: Smokes calls an audience member an Oreo cookie a bunch of times.
0: Mm. uh he he slaps delirious hard in the face over and over and draws some heat there uh delirious tries to fight back but to no avail reyes and smokes beat him down and they tear at the tassels on his mask even and then smokes tells the camera that cabana is next so yeah just you know yeah, continuing for the next night
1: basic stuff you know i was thinking maybe he meant to call delirious an oreo cookie because he thought instead of delirious that his name was delicious because then he would definitely be an oreo cookie
0: um this is making me hungry matt god damn we still have like two hours to go you have any Um, oreos i actually do to believe it or not i i've had them in the cover for like a month maybe i'll finally get to them but uh do it (laughs) i like that do it that encouragement. um we cut to chad call your backstage He says, the last time he and Ace Steele were here in this city, he hit Ace with a chair and never saw so much blood in his life. Collier keeps laughing about the blood. He also says that Ace pissed himself and bled for weeks. (laughs) Just the idea that made me laugh. I just wrote my notes at this point. Chad Collier is insane and awesome. Collier says, tonight it happens again. It's a first blood match between him and Steele. And he said, Collier adds, he's never bled in his career and he won't tonight. I wonder if that's true or not, because I could definitely see that being true, because Collier is not a blood match kind of guy, to the best of my knowledge. But I am not a Collier completist, Matt, so I have no idea if that is true or not. I
1: don't know. A wrestler said it in a promo, so it's probably true.
0: (laughs) And that cuts – we go then to Ace Steel cutting a backstage promo. Ace says August 2005 was supposed to be a special night for him. Uh, getting to see CM Punk and Colt Cabana, his two students wrestle on Punk's final night in Ring of Honor. Ace was hoping to go get a burger with them after the show, but it didn't work out that way, thanks to Chad Collier. Ace says he has never bled so much in his entire life, not even coming out of his mother's womb, which I should note, you, that's not your blood. Yeah,
1: yeah the baby's not the one that's supposed to be bleeding when that happens. <laughs>
0: Although I will actually say I did bleed would when, not last came on my mom's womb. I got I was a cesarean birth and the doctor in the frenzy cuz I had like an umbilical cord wrapped around my throat. I was turning purple. He accidentally sliced my eyelid open with like a scalpel. So I actually got a blade job mat coming out of my mom's belly. So well, I am the real ace steel. Trigger uh, warning. <laughs> what a story. I am the real ace steel of this uh Wrestling Podcast. You 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 are the Ace
1: Steel. So who am I? Jeez.
0: <laughs> you're the one you're the calm person. You're, you're 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 Larry the dog. You're just observing things and everyone likes you, Matt. Um
1: <laughs> Sure. If you say so, buddy. <laughs> I'll
0: take it. Ace sa- Ace says that he's uh chase Collier around, Collier's run from him. He says he god dang, which I loved guarantees Collier that he's not going to bleed first tonight. It's gonna to be Chad. He, he said says, this he- all through his gritted teeth too. Yeah, th- yeah, I-, I uploaded this a while ago onto Twitter. This is it is a very crazy ace delivery that he's known for, but it was kind of surreal after having to watch this not too long after the big Ace Deal controversy in AEW. Ace then says, if you've ever heard of not waking sleeping giants, Ace says it's worse to wake up this crazy little troll. I'm gonna make you bleed and bleed hard. He just screams it <laughs> and- Man, now you gotta read the whole promo in that voice. But, I mean, I'm not doing it justice, obviously. But, yeah, you know, this is your classic crazy A-Steel pro. And it was funny putting that online because some people were like, yep, that's like classic A-Steel style. And some people were like, boy, this guy, he's got problems. But it's like this was – I mean this was a pretty extreme – on the upper end of A-Steel craziness. But this was – he, he's cutting a lot of this was his gimmick was that he was crazy a steel. yeah we mean, saw we
1: saw another one that he cut like in that with like from home with that weird night vision back yeah. in the fall and like yeah i just wrote at the end of this yep this was definitely an a steel promo
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and that brings us to the embassy of alex shelley and jimmy rave to, with prince nana in their corner defeating claudio casagnoli and jimmy yang in 16 minutes four seconds when Rave pinned Castagnoli after a back-and-forth series of Near Falls. Uh, Matt, I'm actually going to give this one to you too first because I'm just kind of working out the order here. But uh long match and uh, a lot of guys I like in this match. What do you think? I'm interested to see what you think of this one.
1: Yeah, I, um, I thought this is like one of those matches where like – and I don't usually say this. I mean it does happen, but I, don't, I feel like this could have been better if it was five minutes shorter. Like I've been really loving Shelley and Rave – as a team like and like how much they have fun healing it up and you know one of the things that they are doing uh you know pretty much all of their tag team matches is like stalling and kind of just like you know like we've we've described it before as almost like house show kind of stuff and mm-hmm. you know that i feel like that's fun but down the stretch i feel like it maybe be overstayed its welcome a little bit um i've i've actually weird to say um I've kind of had my fill of this version of Claudio too. Like I know we've we've talked about Yang, you know how you know maybe he's not hasn't been lived up to some of the hype in ROH, but um, I've always liked you know Claudio, and obviously I still think Claudio is an amazing wrestler, one of like one of, you know one of like athletically one of the most impressive of this generation. But I think this version of Claudio that he was doing, where he was sort of like having fun with and doing the A's and 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 you know doing a lot of the finesse stuff. I was almost like after this, I'm like, you know, I'm glad he's going to turn heel soon, because I feel like this has sort of run out of steam. Um, but as far as the match itself, um, you know, like they're, you know, like Yang and Shelly, they have some fun early. They they slap each other in the back of the head after they do like standing switches on each other. But it's a it's a slow stalling start. And at one point, Rave complains that Yang pulled his hair, even though he didn't get anywhere near it. And on the floor, Nana adds to Rave's complaint, but he just yell, he just shouts rules. And regulation. <laughs> which is just a very fun uh, just, I just love everything Nana says. I really do. I've always have. Um, they you know, they, they have some stuff that I'm not crazy about that just it's this old school wrestling stuff, like they do this wacky gay panic spot where Shelly falls behind Raves butt and then falls headfirst into his crotch. Um and I'm, I'm thinking, like, when is the day where we just stop seeing this stuff so much in wrestling? And obviously, I think at this point, we don't really see it much, like in 2022. But it's probably years after 2006, right? Where they stopped doing, like, heel gay panic yeah. stuff.
0: I mean, and unfortunately, that kind of became around this time. starting maybe when the McFoley encouraged that crowd to chant Jimmy likes Balls. Like, that homophobia kind of became part of the act of Jimmy Raven's sense of the crowd just, like, doing that. Like, yeah. I think there's a moment in this match where someone, you know, sm- I think Claudio smacks Jimmy on the ass and the crowd chants, Jimmy likes it, you know, like Yeah. that stuff just became very par for the course for Rave at this point.
1: Yeah. So, th- so they do a lot of that stalling and like heel stooging until about 10 minutes in the embassy start getting the heat on Yang. They, uh, you know, Yang, he comes back with a spin kick, but then he charges Shelly in the corner and Shelly moves and Yang sa- sails into the post and then onto the floor so it's like, you know, first of all, that was a really good bump, but so now they get to start working on on Yang for a while. Um, you know, Hayes Daisy Hayes gets into some slaps. Um and f- after a few minutes, uh Yang hits Rave with a spin kick, or Raves coming off the top rope and makes the tag to Claudio, or almost makes the tag to Claudio, I should say, but Rave is able to tag tag Shelly, who knocks Claudio to the floor, and then Yang hits a missile drop kick and makes a hot tag to Claudio. Um and, you know, then it kind of breaks down a little bit. Shelley escapes an Opimori water slide, super hits super kicks on Claudio and Yang. And then in what, in my opinion, is the best spot of the match, Yang drop kicks both embassy members to the outside and then leaps off of Claudio into a dive onto them. I, I thought that came off really well. And I thought that was sort of like the peak of the match. Then they do this wacky series of roll-ups with Claudio and Rave, and Rave gets the sudden pinning combo and pins Claudio, which is interesting because there's another more important match later that kind of ends with a sudden pin like that but you know i guess they're far enough apart in the order that it doesn't really step on any anyone's toes um i don't know i just i thought the match never got better than pretty good uh i even though i you know i love the team i think just the baby faces weren't doing it for me i'm i'm looking forward to seeing the heel version of claudio soon
0: it's funny, like, this is a match where you ended by saying, I think it was pretty good, but you were kind of disappointed, where I probably feel like similar in quality. I think, like, this is like a low good match, but like, you know, like a three star, three and a quarter star match. But yeah, I'd, I'd probably
1: go a little bit lower than that, honestly. But,
0: yeah, yeah, I could even, I could even go a slightly lower too, but like, yet I came with low expectations just because I haven't been hot on Yang and this is just a random low card tag. And I actually left kind of pleasantly surprised by this. And I just still, you know, Really love the Alex Shelley Jimmy Rave old school kind of comical heel shtick. I, I, I they are having a blast, and I'm having a blast watching. it. I am not tired of it yet. I agree with the Claudio thing. It's um, you know, he's still really good as a wrestler, but the Hay stuff, it's getting. I mean, it's very one note, and it really does feel like. I mean, the crowd still likes it, but for people who, you know who are watching every single Ring of Honor home release in a row, we've seen it enough at this point. Um, you know, Claudio, you know, Yang takes a back seat in this match. Actually, Claudio really is the focus and the star of the match. Um, you know, and, and Claudio is—it's fun to watch Claudio having fun with the with the heels here. Like, you know, the speck in their ass was funny. Um, making them hit each other. He does the the embassy pyramid hand gesture while he's putting Shelly in holds. And again, most of my the fun stuff here was just like little notes. I had like little comedy bits like. Before the match, when Shelly and Rave are walking to the ring, uh, Shelly like looks into the crowd and just over the like the the camera mic, you can hear uh, Shelly like warn Jimmy. He goes, "Jimmy, I see a lot of toilet paper." <laughs> and I just like I love a little like acting like that. Um, Claudio at one point he's chopping Jimmy and Shelly back and forth, and then he almost chops the ref but catches himself. So a little fun stuff like that. Uh, the, the, there's a moment where um Shelley kicks Yang, but first he makes like this big ch- gesture and he just shouts karate. <laughs> I, love, I love that everything's just karate to him. Um, Rave wins completely cleanly too, which was kind of a surprise. Uh, the one thing, I, one other thing, I want to mention that you mentioned like the hot tag. I found the hot tag to be like the weird moment of this match because, um, he, you know Jimmy Yang is the face in peril. He fights off Shelly in that sequence you mentioned. He hits the big flying dropkick, but that's not the immediate hot tag. You think, okay, that's the big move. That's going to be the hot tag now. Instead, Shelly immediately, and I me- mean immediately, like jumps up from taking this this top rope flying dropkick. He tags Rave. Yang is lying motionless just feet away from his corner. Rave then pauses to check on Shelly. Yang keeps lying motionless. Rave comes over. Then they do a spot where Yang gets up and does a very basic enziguri, and then he makes the hot tag. And the whole sequence just felt like if they had just done the hot tag after the missile dropkick, it would have been way more dramatic and hot, like... I don't know if something went wrong or there was miscommunication, but it seems weird that like they actually let the heel make the tag. They let the heel get to him. And then they just do a much smaller move and then the hot tag, but whatever. That was the match after the match. Shelly asks Yang where his karate man is now gang keeps saying Leroy's coming over and over at this point, Chris hero snatches a mic. He starts to talk. He's in the crowd drowned out by fuck you hero chance. Hero says he and Claudio were a tag team and best friends, but after Claudio's rejected Hero twice, something, something, I can't make it out because the crowd is trying to shut the fuck up and the sound system isn't great. Uh, Hero throws a chair from the crowd, but instead of it getting into the ring, it hits the ropes and bounces back out of the ring. This should have been a sign for Hero not to do it again, but he would continue. Hero calls Claudio an asshole and says they're coming for him. At this point, Ray of Honor students race to tackle Hero but not before Hero throws another chair from the crowd. And from the reaction – I wrote my notes, Matt. From the reaction of the crowd of some in the crowd, it seems like it might have hit somebody. The students drag Hero away as Claudio leads a Ring of Honor chair in the ring. Turns out, Matt, that, Mer- that, that did in fact hit someone in the ring. I will go from a PW Torch live report from someone, Jason, J-S-I-N. They wrote – Hero then started throwing chairs into the ring from the crowd. One of them hit ringside photographer and all around sweetheart Mary Kate Grosso in the arm. Her arm looked pretty hurt and you could tell she was fighting back tears. She never came back out for the rest of the show. She was pissed and rightfully so. Fuck you, Hero. Think first next time," says this live report. "That's not me."
1: I vaguely remember hearing about that. Now that you mention it, the um, the Mary Kate situation. It's funny because, like, I mean, it's not funny; it's horrible. But like the the the, the, the part that that I was going to say, it's funny, funny, weird. Is just like the first throw where he threw the chair into the into the ring from the crowd. I was like, that's a really impressive throw, but kind of risky. And now, obviously, the second one, like that risk uh, didn't you know didn't pay off.
0: Not only that, Matt. Tomorrow night. Just to give a hint of what comes for the next show we cover, the very next night of this of this triple shot, it happens again to a fan this time. Ridiculous. And so they did not heed their lesson here. But um, next up, speaking of chairs and things that aren't good, we have our first blood match where Ace steel defeated Chad Collier in 11 minutes, 52 seconds when uh, he made Collier bleed from – I guess technically it's in storyline, it's a chair shot, but when you watch the match, it's clearly he tombstones Collier onto like one of the, a sign, a ring sign, and then Collier clearly bleeds and then gets up and Ace hits him with the chair, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I will say, uh, this was one of the least enjoyable things we've seen out through the years of my in a long time. Um, after having, you know, they built this up for a fair bit for a low, by Ring of Honor standards, for a low mid card feud. This was a disappointing end. This is a very unimaginative, slow, low impact brawl. It is a ton of head biting, guys getting tossed into things by the head, punches to the head, Collier asking the ref every few seconds to see if Steel is bleeding, which is the basically replicating the worst parts of last man staying matches, which is just, check them ref check them over and over again when you know it's not the end of the match slowing things to a crawl all this makes sense in a kayfabe sense right matt like in a first blood match you go for the head but none of it's very interesting none of it's very imaginative none of it's very intense certainly not nearly as intense as the promos these guys you know two very intense promo guys you know all the work they had done building this up we get a spot where Ace grabs a table. He never does anything with it. It never comes into play. Anton Chekhov is crying somewhere. Um, we get a passable final minute where Ace finally gets the chair. He tries to hit Collier with it, which, you know, brings the story full circle where, you know, that's what Collier busted, how he busted Ace deal up really badly, which started this feud. We then get the finish I described earlier. There isn't even much blood. Um, again, I would just sum up with, there wasn't this, you know, this match could have worked two ways. It could have been really simple like it was, but very intense, or it could have not been super intense like it wasn't, but the very imaginative and action packed and have lots of, you know, innovative weapon stuff and big spots. And it was neither. It was kind of very simplistic, but kind of blase. The rare time in through the years history, I will give a match, certainly in recent years, I will give a match, the below average rating. I think, the way I could sum this match up most is the two most memorable parts of the match were the following. The first was some fans shouting, Fred Savage, that's Fred Savage. Get out of here, Fred Savage, at Chad Collier. And then he tried to start a Kevin Arnold chant that no that did not take. And the other most memorable thing was after the match when Ace Steel then um basically apes the ending to Karate Kid 2. Where he acts like he's going to murder Chad Collier and then honks his nose. So what do you mean,
1: basically so, apes it? That's was, okay. that's what he was doing.
0: Okay, yes, he he did the Karate Kid two ending, and to me, those were the two highlights of this match.
1: You know, I was looking at reviews of this, and I know like nobody liked this match, but I liked it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh my god.
0: Yeah, Th- I- this is the last episode of Through the Aids. <laughs> this, this this is it. <laughs> well.
1: I will go out on a high note. Um, I enjoyed I enjoyed it. I don't have to say. Right from the beginning where like, you know, Ace Steel is like furious and enraged, but he comes out like bopping around to the Blues Brothers song. Like like that's right off the bat. It, it hooked me. You know, and he like chucks a section B sign into the ring and chases Chad Collier around with it. How is that not fun? And, that, and then like Collier gets a chair to fend off the section B sign. Like, come on. Um, then another fun thing that happened was very early on, Chad was just like headbutting Ace and he yells to the ref, he's bleeding! And the ref responds, no blood. And Collier <laughs> just yells, what?! <laughs> i'm still laughing thinking about that like that was a lot of chad fun chad collier
0: was so good like, yeah. chad collier did not get his his day in the sun that he deserved
1: yes in fact the most annoying part to me about this match was something that the fans did which is they pull like ace sets up a table and then the motherfuckers chant we want tables i hate when they do that like first of all i hate that chant to begin with and then it's like he's setting up a table what's wrong with you it's right there No, i know as we've discussed, or you discussed, they did not use the table. But they do do some stuff with it. Like, the table ends up really not set up. Like, it's just lying flat on the floor. And Collier Bulldog's Ace onto the flat table. Like, I don't see... You don't see that very often, and I thought that was cool. And then Collier starts using the guardrail, props it up against the ring apron. Again, another thing you don't really see too often. It's also a... Kayfabe-wise, a good match to stop... A good way to stop the match, because those guardrails cause bleeding. It's actually, in terms of planning, probably... Not smart because those guardrails cause, cause hardway bleeding. So it could yeah. have prematurely ended the match. Although as I have said many times, which I don't know if anyone realizes this, the guardrails they had at the beginning, which cut people open very often, they changed those. Like the ones that they have at this point are not the ones that are cutting people constantly. You probably might've might noticed that that has, that has not happened in a while. Yeah. Um, it's not the same. They're not as sharp, but regardless, I like that they were doing that. Um, you know, and I, and I, you know, I thought it was kind of ridiculous that they kept, um, like they, he kept hitting, uh, uh, each other. They kept hitting each other in the head and like nobody ever bled for a while. You know, at one point, Collier Pilmanizes, uh, which is I, a term that I have not heard too much, but you know what it means where they yeah. put, the, where you put the, uh, the, the, the body part in between like the, the folding chair and he tries to come off the top rope, but Ace press slams him off and then he fires up and he's about to hit Collier over the head with the chair. But he hesitates when Collier begs off, which is a little bit silly. Uh, but then uh he teases something with the guardrail, Collier goes for a pile driver, ace backdrops out of it and tombstones Collier onto the guardrail, which you have to admit the crowd prop popped pretty big for that tombstone on the guardrail. And then, you know, he gets the chair one more time, wraps the chair against his head and the ref calls for the bell, and you know, like like you said, Collier isn't bleeding all that much. But you know, I guess he did say he never bled before, so maybe he's just not really um not really practiced in uh and skilled at blading uh, you know i I thought that the ending could have been a little bit more dramatic, but I thought the match did have good intensity i don't i mean I believe you that you didn't like it. I believe everyone else that I'm wrong, but I thought this was fun I thought you know what, and a- at the very at the very least ace had good intensity
0: you know maybe you finally have found your um Colt Cabana, Nigel McGinnis, European Rounds match. We would not, I will not go that far, but... Uh, <laughs> I yeah. yeah, I like that match a lot more than you like this match, but yeah. Um, you know, one other thing that's weird, I, I wanted to ask you about this, like, I, I have a pretty iron stomach, I don't get personally, I get, sometimes I'll get offended on behalf of people. I thought you people. were going to say
1: face, like, I have a pretty face, which I would agree with. No, you never I like have a pretty
0: a iron face, Matt, but um, I I will say there's something that always is makes me a slightly bit uncomfortable. Like I feel like, oh, this is this this is a bad. For, the wrestling is bad for society, even when it's appropriate. In a match like this, whenever a crowd in unison is chanting "bleed," like just bleed, bleed, bleed. Like I feel kind of uncomfortable. Like, oh God, is, it, is yeah, this the gladiators? These, 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 these
1: crowds are, are a bunch of animals. I I can agree with that. <laughs>
0: always reminds me of that GIF everyone uses up on the early UFC shows where that guy has the UFC drawn on his face and then like Jess Bleed written on his chest. It's just like, oh, God, like maybe all combat sports and fake combat sports should be eliminated because this is this is dumb. But um, next, Dave Prasak is outside, joined by Homicide and Julius Smokes. Prezak says, Homicide's match with Colt tonight has been canceled due to Homicide giving him a concussion last night. Homicide, in turn, calls Colt a punk-ass pussy. He says, he he, he personally is Colt Cabana's greatest fear, and the chapter is now closed. Homicide then says, Colt is old news, and he wants to go party with Smokes tonight. Smokes says, and I quote, Pop go the weasel, Colt Cabana's dead. Which, for some reason, made me <laughs> laugh. Um,
1: Another promo, completely in darkness. It's also, like, you know we know concussions are bad it's It's just still weird to me like that Prezak yells at homicide for giving cabana a concussion when we know that homicide has tried to literally murder him in public multiple times prior to this in all sorts of horrible ways um and like really hitting someone in the head with like a hard object in wrestling is much more par for the course and boilerplate than trying to murder somebody with uh with chemicals,
0: yeah, I mean between like tried to cut Colt's tongue out of his mouth, tried to suffocate him, try, <clears throat> tried to pour Drano down his throat. Or kill even kill you want him with a
1: back- coat hanger a few times.
0: Or, yeah, or even if you want to go back to the first year of Ring of Honor, like, tried to stab Steve Crino's eye out with a fork. Like, like this is, this is pretty low on the list of bad things he's done in Ring of Honor. But we then get a little video recapping the recent Matt Seidel and AJ Styles versus Generation Next storyline, and that brings us to AJ Styles and Matt Seidel, defeating Generation Next of Austin Aries and Jack Evans in 17 minutes, 47 seconds, when Seidel pinned Evans after a Shooting Star press. Uh, You got four pretty top-level wrestlers there, and unfortunately, Matt, I don't know what you feel about this match, but no matter what you feel about it, it was not going to be remembered after the match that came after it. But what do you think about rewatching this one?
1: Well, good thing they had the match before it, I guess. Um, But... uh yeah, I mean I they this was definitely like Dragon Gate inspired, right? Like you yeah. know, I mean it's you know, it's hard to beat the real thing. But um the uh the closing stretch was very Dragon Gate inspired. Before that it was a little bit slow. Um but you know, like it did have an issue which is good. It was sort of like a continuation of the match at the fourth anniversary show. And I think in some ways this match was a little bit more exciting than that one um that match had a little bit more depth to it i would say but you know e- evans does a really good breakdance to start the match it was an on-point breakdance is how i would describe it yeah because he obviously always starts with those but this was a good one
0: um, and i before you keep going i just want to bring up a note here because of that from jason's pw torch live report i didn't notice this i wonder if you noticed this or if the cameras just didn't catch it but um he wrote Jack was doing his usual breakdancing and whatnot, and AJ Styles broke character and could not stop smiling. He looked like he was having a great time during the match. I did not notice that, but I love the idea (laughs) of like AJ Styles breaking because of Jack Evans.
1: I would have liked to see AJ like clapping along to the beat of the music while he was (laughs) breakdancing. That would have been even better. Um, but yeah, Evans actually starts with like mat work with Seidel, which you don't see too often, and it was pretty good, but not necessarily what people are paying to see with those two guys, but, um you know, they end up doing more, like, fast-paced, rope-running reversal stuff, and then AJ comes in, and he just chucks Evans into the corner and asks for Aries, and Aries obliges, Um but, um but AJ and Seidel, I mean, do... Excuse me. AJ and Ares does very little before Seidel asked to tag in to take on Ares because, you know, there is still that issue between Seidel and Ares. And, um, you know, they do more fun with like head scissors stuff, like their match at Arena Warfare, which they worked that head scissors spot for a long time. They didn't do it for quite as long here, but, you know, it's nice little callback. I, you know, I enjoyed that. Um, then Ares asked for styles to come in. Now, one thing I didn't love was, they act like Sydal and Evans are weak links or secondary members of their team. It's like, okay, we want the big stars to come in and wrestle each other. I don't feel like that's totally necessary in ROH at this point. I mean I get it. Obviously, like it's true, <laughs> like Aries and Styles are the big stars. They're the you know, they're the main eventers of their teams, whereas Cydal and Evans are still undercard guys. So I do get it, but I didn't love it, regardless. Um that said, I think Aries and Styles stuff here Was more enjoyable than the stuff they did in their singles match back at This Means War. I think, you know, they do a cool sequence of avoiding each other's moves. The crowd likes that. Um, so I enjoyed that. So they didn't work together too, too much. Um, but, you know, they, they kind of built to the moments where they did. Um, at one point, um, Seidel and, and, uh, Styles get the heat on Evans at um, Sidal he hits like this uh, sudden German suplex and Evans lands in this really sick angle on his head and neck which is kind of a pattern with Jack Evans right of just like taking way too over the top bumps that are look very dangerous but somehow getting up from them so that allows Styles to be tagged in and he does something similar to what we saw in the other tag match where he knocks his Aries off the apron and then does this like press slam into a spine buster on Evans and the crowd just goes insane for that one um, and so AJ just goes really hard at Evans. Cause I guess, cause Evans can take it. He's targeting Evans is back. Seidel and AJ, they do a backbreaker leg drop combo, um, for on Evans. Jack does a handspring elbow on Seidel and flips all the way over the top rope and goes to springboard back into the ring into with a knee, but Seidel leaps and cuts him off. And then AJ puts this like deep moodalock onto Evans and Aries breaks that one up. Um, they go for this like double vertical suplex into a neck breaker on Jack Evans and hits it like that, that, that that's a really good spot. They're just, they, they really beat the crap out of Evans. And I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and then at one point Evans, finally, he leaps over a double backbreaker attempt and hot tags, Aries. And Aries is a really good hot tag. He's on fire. And this is when the match really picks up, you know, big splash onto Seidel for two Evans ducks, a roaring clothesline by AJ and hits a handstand kick, uh, he goes for Arana, but Seidel leaps up and kicks him. And then AJ has him in a Styles class position, but Ares hits the Crucifix bomb out of that. And then Ares goes for the heat-seeking missile. Seidel cuts him off with the here-it-is driver. Evans breaks that up, and Seidel's nose is busted open, so I guess he probably broke it there. Um, then Evans goes for the Sasuke special into Arana on the floor, which he's done before, but AJ catches him, turns it into a Styles clash on the floor, which won't be for long, but as of this moment, it is the best spot of the entire night so far. Um, and then Aries hits a sudden heat-seeking missile on Styles. Styles, but but Seidel hits a shooting star press on Evans, gets the win. So they finally gave Seidel a big win here, um, but I love the closing stretch. I think that the first part of the match was good, Um, Good enough that I would say this was a really good match, Um, but yeah, it's It's hard to um, do an imitation of the real thing when the real thing is coming right after, but just on its own, I thought this was a really, really good match.
0: Yeah, I I am in agreement with you again on this one. Uh, I thought this was a very good match, like a strong three and a half, maybe three and three quarter, but I, I, I like you. I... Yeah, it's going to pale in comparison to what comes next. I felt like these four guys together are incapable of a bad match, but this did not, this did feel like this was one gear lower than maybe they're fully capable of. It only felt like in the final couple of minutes that they really turned it on to, to the, to the fullest extent, but still I enjoyed this match the whole way through quite a bit of fun. I agree that. I did kind of feel bad more for um, Jack Evans than Seidel, where it felt like the story of the match was both Seidel and Styles had no interest in wrestling Jack Evans. like They didn't even take him seriously. They just were like, yeah, yeah I want Aries in the ring. Like uh, early on where, you know, AJ comes in against Evans and he just like pushes Evans aside. She's like, no, are you tagging, you know, Aries? I just, I felt bad for our sweet boy, Jack. Um, I thought Aries and Sydell did a lot of good stuff together. You know, Sydell doing Aries headstand drop kick, you know, Aries doing teasing the same, but then faking him out and chopping him to the chest instead, you know, Aries countering a bunch of Seidel's knees into a fisherman's neck breaker that he holds the leg on for near fall, like stuff like that. Really neat. Um, you know, AJ Styles t- is decent, but take somewhat of a backseat as usual in kind of his, uh, this run for him in ring of honor. But I, I do like anytime he, he showed this on the previous show. I like anytime he's the big power bully. Like I liked him tossing Evans, like you mentioned in, into his corner and says he tagged Aries. I, one of my favorite moments of the match you mentioned how the crowd pop big for is when Evans just starts throwing strikes to like stand up for himself against AJ. And then that surprising pop you mentioned that AJ gets when he just quickly destroys Evans with a press slam. Like you think of all the crazy spots people are going to see on the show. And just like a simple thing like that gets a big pop. Um, Highlight of the show, I mean, the match for me, this is actually, I think, one of the coolest spots in the whole show, including what comes next, which is when AJ has Evans on his shoulders in that powerbomb position. And Seidel, who is just standing in on the canvas in the ring, is able to vertical leap so high he can hit Jack Evans with an enziguri to the head while he's sitting on AJ's shoulders. That was just an incredible feat of just, like, agility. Um... Yeah, so to me, a board, match on the border, of, uh, this is pr- very good. I thought that whole ending sequence was really done well. It was very inventive. Like, every move kind of led into the next, but it all happened quickly. It all made sense. Now, Matt, um, this is where things get crazy. You know, I like Wade Keller, but we also like, I, I, I at least I have grown to love teasing Wade Keller. It's one of my new favorite trends of the last year through the years following his reviews and stuff. This one, Matt, I got a couple of little waitisms here. Matt Wade Keller gave this match and the Dragon Gate Six Man the same star rating. He gave both of them four and a half stars, and he wrote about this match, the Styles and Seidel versus Evans and Shelley match, which, by the way, it was not Evans and Shelley. But anyway, he says it may have been my favorite four person tag match since Edge and Rey Mysterio versus Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit at WWE No Mercy two thousand two, which I gave five stars. It was that, that was an
1: incredible match. In case anyone hasn't seen that in a while.
0: Yeah, he Wade writes, it wasn't that good, but it was excellent. So to Wade, this was on the level of the Dragon Gate 69, which, you know what, everyone's allowed their own opinion. I will just say, I think Wade Keller might be the only person in history I've ever seen say he thought this match was on the same level as that, as that match. But, you know, to each their own. But I, I thought that was kind of interesting. That is um, that
1: is pretty surprising. But, you know, like I always said this about Wade's reviews. You've heard me say it before if you listen to the show. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes he's wrong but his analysis is always unusual like <laughs> always like the, it. it's always completely singular like there's nobody who analyzes matches in the way that Wade Keller does
0: Matt, even when i, I agree I, with him that is true That i cannot wait i have a great wade line for the main event and knowing i have this it's like having a nice warm pie waiting on the window <laughs> that we're going to have for dessert tonight Yum. it's so good but um, um delicious like the- an oreo cookie <laughs> oh god damn it Matt. Oh, you're gonna make me hungry so after the match you can hear Seidel ask if he can get a towel or something so yeah Matt mentioned it but I guess uh, uh, we should stress uh, Seidel's nose basically explodes at some point in this match uh AJ and Aries both check on him AJ even holds the towel for a second for Seidel on his nose which I just wrote aww and then you can hear uh, if you listen in you can hear Aries actually ask off mic to Matt Seidel he goes how bad broken and you could just hear Seidel go, yeah, you know, it's broken. And I don't know who was responsible for Seidel's broken nose, but Ari seems either a little sad or guilty. He, like, goes out of his way after the match to raise Seidel's arm to really be like, hey, cheer for this guy. You know, he just got his face broken. Seidel poses. He gets a bunch of cheers and chants. The Observer would write afterwards that Matt Seidel suffered a broken nose, a black eye, and facial bruises from the from this match. I would note that isn't a black eye just a facial bruise, but... I, I get what he's saying, but um, we go backstage to find Christopher Daniels and Allison Danger. Daniels says things seem to be looking turning around for both of them, looking up for both of them. Allison Danger says tonight you're going to see six of the best women's wrestlers America has to offer. She says they're going to give you heart, soul, and maybe even a bit of blood. <laughs> Spoiler, you're not going to get a bit of blood from them. Uh, Daniels, meanwhile, gloats over finally defeating Samoa Joe in a Ring of Honor ring the previous night. Daniels says the question now is when Christopher Daniels is going to shake a hand in Ring of Honor? Is it tonight? Is it tomorrow? Is it the 100th show? Is it the 1000th show? Daniels says it's a very good question. Matt, one thing I want to mention I thought was pretty funny watching is probably – I,
1: that, I like, that it definitely won't be the 1,000th show? Probably I agree with you.
0: <laughs> but but the, I also thought it was funny. Like It was one of those things I have to kind of take myself out of like, my business because I feel like if you watched every Rave Honor show like us, like, oh, it makes sense. Oh, it's playing off the very first show, this whole long saga of Christopher Daniels being the one guy who wouldn't shake hands. But I just thought – imagine if you're a fan – Who has never watched Ring of Honor before and you dropped in, which is very likely for some fans likely, because this was a show that was, you know, got a lot of recommendations and stuff. And all of a sudden you see this guy earnestly and seriously being like, the big question right now is, am I going to shake a hand? When am I going to shake a hand? Like a (laughs) matchup? Like, like, like the, like, like the seriousness, the gravitas being given to the idea of, the big storyline is: Is he going to shake a hat? If so, when? Like,
1: if this was the old days where they talked about the code of honor at the beginning of every show, then it might make this make a little more sense to the um to the uninitiated viewer. But yeah, in the without context here, it just sounds like a very bizarre storyline. I will say this: one the thing that I marked out for in this promo, in case you couldn't guess from listening to me recently, is Alice in Danger gets to talk. I was so excited to hear her cut an actual promo.
0: She's actually portrayed kind of like as an equal, like a partnership. Yeah. Like we're both doing good. You know, we're both wrestling tonight, you know? So yeah, I, I knew you would like that. Like, you know, she actually has something to say and she's not just treated as window dressing for once. Um, and that brings us to the reason why the show is so remembered. The, what people just refer to as the Dragon Gate Six Man, but technically it was Do Fixer, Dragon Kid, Genki Four Gucci, and Ry- Ryu Saido defeating Blood Generation of Shima. Masato Yoshino, Naruki Doi, in 20 minutes, 34 seconds when Dragon Kid pinned Doi after he hit the Dragon Rana. Um, Matt, there's obviously so much to say about this match. Um, I, I, I thought the best way to handle this would be, I kind of got some thoughts about, like, kind of the significance of this match. Then we can kind of talk about the match. And then maybe talk about the reaction to the match. It's really three stages, but I'll start off with, I just have some thoughts. I, I kind of wrote down some notes and just some thoughts about the significance of this match. Because, you know, this this match, I, like, let's just start with, um, this match was seen live by far less than 2,000 people. But I would argue it's one of the most influential matches of its generation. And I would argue even more than that, I mean, even, an even safer argument than that, Matt, is... There's probably no single match on Through the Years that we're ever going to cover on this podcast that is more influential than this match. Like, there are trends, Ring of Honor, that were probably as influential as this, but in terms of just one match, that trend happening not over the course of months or years, but like, one match changing things, this is the most influential match we will cover on this show ever. Um, When Ring of Honor started, we know, I've talked about this a bit before, but... You know, the High Flyers were different, especially on the indies. Like, you had some AJ Styles, but you also had a lot of Jack Evans, Amazing Reds, SATs, Special Ks. And I love a lot of those guys, you know, especially guys like Jack Evans. And there are actually elements of them I miss in today's wrestling. But one thing about that era was a lot of the great High Flyers, they weren't really well-rounded wrestlers, nor did they always even have a good grasp of the fundamentals or good physiques. Sometimes, as we've seen with Jack Evans in the early days, they didn't even have real wrestling gear. They were just these skinny, innovative daredevils who came up with crazy off-the-wall ideas, and they were willing to take huge physical risks to try them, take a lot of physical abuse. Dragon Gate, th- This what this match changed, is, again, it's not like this was a brand new style. I just feel it was like it raised the bar. Um, Here were these wrestlers who were just as exciting and just as innovative, as the top high flyers of the U.S., the it guys, but they all had better bodies, they had snappier execution, they had more professional gear, they had better fundamentals, they all had some level of personality or gimmick, and I feel like it was after this match, all of a sudden fans in the U.S. saw it. You didn't have to choose between being, a wrestler being a cool high flyer, and all those other attributes I just mentioned, like you could have it all, and I think fans over time, from this point on, they started to expect it all. You know, they wanted not just the cool high fly moves, they wanted all these things. And over time, us wrestling, I feel like changed to kind of fit that first in the indies. And then I feel that influence spread to the majors, the flyers. They went from being guys that looked like red or Jack Evans to guys who looked like modern day Pac or Ricochet or Will Ospreay. In fact, you know, in the cases of guys like Pac or Ricochet, dragon gate became the place where those talented guys went kind of like a finishing school where they would get that last layer of polish, like watch Ricochet in his early days, and then watch him in Dragon Gate. Like, completely different look, physique, you know, level of polish. Even, drag, you know, Jack Evans had just started going to Dragon Gate. We've seen him, we've started to notice, you know, working on more of his kicks. And you noticed on this show, you even mentioned, oh, he was actually doing some mat wrestling to start the match. And he's actually got some gear now, you know. Dragon Gate was kind of, kind of became the place where guys would get that last level of polish. And then, like I said, though, to me, not all of this is good. I feel like wrestling's gotten a little bit too homogenous. There's fewer distinct styles. There's few, there's far more wrestlers who do a little bit of everything, and you know, not 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 all of that is Dragon Gate's fault. I think a lot of it's just it's easier to watch wrestling from around the world, and everything's we're more multicultural. But I like different body types. I like different styles. I don't think every wrestler needs to be good at every aspect of everything. And I feel like this match kind of started the beginning of the end of that, but. At the same time, I can mourn what we've lost and also celebrate what we have. And then on the Ring of Honor end, I know I'm drawing on, but on the Ring of Honor end, I feel like is this match more than any, like highlights what Ring of Honor's place in wrestling really was, which was they were the taste makers. You know, like I, I, I see people criticize like, oh, like why does Ring of Honor get credit for this match? Like they did not, you know, invent Dragon Gate. This is another company. It's all Dragon Gate guys and they were having matches like this before. But what I would say is, you know, What Ray of Honor did for a lot of wrestlers and styles and things and ideas was they brought it to a different audience that was not going to watch it otherwise. So in many ways, they were like what Gabe Sapolsky's mentor, Paul Heyman, his his ECW was for a new generation. Because you look at ECW, they always found what was about to break big, be it like a trend, a promotion, a particular wrestler, a style. And then they brought to the U.S. for a relatively small what I would call a relatively small, but influential crowd of the most hardcore fans and journalists who would then kind of spread the word over time to the rest of the wrestling world. So like, no, Raymar did not create dragon gate. You can argue, you can argue dragon gate didn't create dragon gate because it was its own evolution of promotions like Mishinoku Pro and ground Hamada and, and Ultimo dragon earlier before he formed, you know, Tori which became dragon gate. Like the idea of blending Japanese junior heavyweight wrestling with Lucha, that Lucha Risu st- style, was long done, was done before dragon gate was just again the refining and next evolution of it. But what ring of honor did was it exposed things to Dragon like dragon gate to an audience that would have never seen them otherwise, or at least never seen it live. So just like ECW was about finding like Rey Mysterio jr. And other guys from Mexico and guys like Chris Jericho and, and East end mission. Pro at, you know, barely legal. They were famous for that. Six man tag, that multi, that tag match from the Mishinoku Pro guys at, uh, Barely Legal, their first official pay per view. Ring of Honor was about doing that for another generation. And Dragon Gate, in their sense, was their Mishinoku Pro, except they, Dragon Gate had a hell of a lot bigger of influence from this match and others, I would say, on wrestling in the US and around the world than Mishinoku Pro's, um, matches in ECW did. And I got more to add, but Matt, I've already droned on, so like, just about the influence of this match, I mean, it, it, it is, it, it, you know, it's, it's a way we, like, watch, watching it back in 2022, it just is more apparent than ever just how much it kind of, ch- Dragon Gate kind of changed wrestling.
1: Well, this is the question that I had for you because you would know better than me. So, like, is it this match? Like, obviously, as a fan who wasn't watching Dragon Gate, this was hugely, like, eye-opening for me and a lot of other people. Had you watched these guys wrestle in Dragon Gate before you saw this match?
0: Um, I had watched a little bit. I had bought the original Torimon Comes to Japan tape, which a lot of people did, which is kind of like the original, kind of big Torimon tape. I would watch an isolated Dragon Gate match here or there, um... That's you bring up a very interesting point because actually, um one of the things I remember that that took place on so on like the message boards at at after this match came out was you had some fans saying like obviously we'll get to it after we talk about everything else related to this match but like so many reviewers are saying you know this is the best match in wrestling history blah 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 and there was a bit of dra- gatekeeping by Dragon Gate fans which I was by no means you know watching. I didn't just didn't have the time or resources to watch a lot of it, but I recalled some Dragon Gate fans being like, huh, like these posers, like Dragon Gate puts out matches this good all the time. And so I actually was recently on Alan 4L, our friend of the show, his PW Torch podcast. And before the show, knowing we were going to do this show, I asked him because Alan huge Dragon Gate guy, you know, knows as much about most more, he knows more about wrestling in general than I'll he ever know. But I asked him like, I basically asked him before the show off the air and he gave me this great answer. I wish we'd recorded and put on this podcast. I basically said to him, like, is this match like, where does this rank in the dragon gate pantheon? Like, are those people right? Like, is this match just another dragon gate match or, and it's only special because it's in the U S or were they playing on matches like this all the time? And Alan remembered those same kind of people that I just mentioned, those kind of people like Ugh, Dragon gate always did this. And he disagrees. He, Alan, who has seen a ton of dragon gates says he would put this still, I think in his, I think he's something to the effect of his top three to five Dragon Gate matches ever. He said that there was a match they did at their big Kobe World Show the year before, which was basically the same guys. I think they swap in Don Fuji for Masato Yoshino. That is on this level or better. But in his opinion, who and I would trust, this was one of the better Dragon Gate matches, but it was not. Is it absolutely like far and away number one in this elite island on its own? No, but is in that upper tier. So I know that doesn't quite exactly answer your question, but... um,
1: I mean, it's totally worth knowing. Like, uh, But, yeah. you know, I mean, it certainly got a lot of attention. Like I said, I hadn't watched Dragon Gate. So, like, this was totally new for me, but there was always a part of me that was like, but am I just, like, a Western-centric ignoramus? And that's why I think this match is so much better when it's actually just, like, par for the course for what these guys were doing. Um, but I guess, you know, if it wasn't, you know, that, that you know adds another layer to it. I mean, I think... What makes this match special is that it was like opening up another world to a bunch of people that didn 't realize this thing could exist like there was like like a grace and a beauty to it. I guess that even if you don't like wrestling and don't care for the violence aspect of it, it's like this was just such an incredible like gymna- I you know I, I know it's kind of it's minimizing to call it gymnastics because obviously there's so much more to it, and I know there's you know story to and character involved, but like i'm not going to pretend that I understood all the nuances of the characters, you know like that would be would be lying yeah. like i I was watching this and enjoying the athleticism of it, like you know, I know like when you'll get to some of the reviews later, but like Meltzer and Gabe were talking about like oh there's this actual deep psychology where they're protecting the dragon Rana or whatever it's like i don't know about you, but like when I watch this match that's not super apparent to me what's apparent to me is the timing the pacing the athleticism the grace of the moves the body control the uh the intricacies of the of like all the different spots and everyone working together and the the speed with which they're doing it and the characters they're projecting like did you experience this like deep psychological story as you watch this match
0: no in fact I, I did see it as kind of like a spot for like a great uh, again, I can see nuance afterwards, but I think you just put it perfectly like again, it wasn't that they were just like, oh, they're doing all these things I've never seen before as much as they're doing they're cutting a pace I've never seen before, and they're doing it like just a a density to what they're doing, like and so just, much stuff yeah that, gracefully yeah, and, and uh,
1: gracefully and beautifully, like honestly yeah. like there was just like a like there was just like such an art to the way they moved and the way they moved in concert with each other, like some sort of like amazing synchronous synchronization. And yeah, like we've talked about this recently. There's a lot of trios matches now where there's some version of this. I don't know if even the best ones now can pull this off, like in all of the depth that, and, and just like everything was done perfectly. Like I, I don't know. May, maybe you look closer than me and notice something that was a little bit off. I didn't. Uh, did you? Did you notice anything where you're I, like? I, I, I really
0: notice one thing. It's not even a botch. It's just a funny moment. Actually, if I can just go to my notes. Um, yeah, there, there's a moment so if, where um, Todd Sinclair is talking to Do Fixer on the apron, the the illegal, the people that aren't in for the team, so he can avoid seeing like a Blood Generation double team, so they can get away with it. And then Blood Generation one of the members tr- covers Dragon Kid, like they've done their double team, and you can see Rio Saito, who's on D- Do Fixer, standing on the apron, and he's actually talking to Sinclair, and he starts pointing, like you have to make the count on, you know, when it's his partner that's getting covered, like which I thought, you know, again, that's not even a botch, but it's just like a funny thing where he's like
1: sportsmanship you know
0: yeah dude like dude you're missing you're missing the spot here like it's it's time to it's kind of, where in you know you're thinking in storyline i would never want to tell the ref you know but but in terms of like moves again like yeah they hit everything so much stuff so intricate so fast-paced and there's no botch here as far as i can tell and it just goes and goes and goes and it's just relentless you know that, that's the way i can describe the pace like Relentless. And I, I think I talked about it on the last show, like, uh, I think the big thing Dragon Gate brought was the idea of a lot of times in wrestling. The idea was always, you've got to get the most out of every spot. So you, you, you know, you do a spot and then you kind of milk the reaction until the reaction's done and then you get the next spot. And these guys were like, we are going to do so much. You can't keep track of it all. And you, you know, you can't catch your breath. And the kind of like the sum total of that is the fun. Like, it's not that, oh, you saw a big spot. We got every last drop out of it. It's more like you just saw eight spots and your just mind is blown because you can't. It's not slowing. It's not letting you appreciate it all. It's just going to keep going and going and going and
1: right and, I and think that's, that's the th- like, that's the thing that was especially influential it's like we see many more matches now where that's that's the case where they just like overwhelm you with like crazy athletic hard hitting spots and you're just like whoa 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 and like it just keeps getting like and you really and yeah nothing really has the time to breathe until the end when you're just like oh my god what did we just see and yeah, yeah that that is pretty new actually and um but i mean the thing is like it's the execution i think that Besides that, that really makes it so special because there's just, it's just really hard to do that. And it's just so impressive. And, you know, I think, I think that's what really blew people's minds. Like, if they were doing this all the time in Japan, you know, that, you know, you know, that's, you know, credit to them. But like, it is something to go to, you know, what's probably at still the biggest market for pro wrestling in the world, the United States, even though Japan is probably pretty close. And, um, and just opening so many eyes to it. Um, obviously there was a whole world of pro wrestling, especially in 2006, that I think would probably not be open to accepting this, you know, even after they saw it, you know, they'd be like, okay, you know, that's, that's cute, but that's not real wrestling, you know? And I, you know, I don't think any, like, I don't think Vince McMahon, if he were to have watched this match in 2006, would be like, we got to get this on our show, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but there was enough people. And I think that's what ROH brought to it. It's like. R.O.H., yeah, they, they gave them exposure, but they also cultivated a culture of like wrestling fan that was just like hungry to see this new stuff and appreciate it. And I guess that is like ECW, because they, ECW did do the, the Michinoku pro matches, which wowed people at the time, but didn't didn't change the world the way, you know, Dragon Gate probably did. Um but yeah, I, I think I think that's that's what it is. It's just that ROH gave them a platform where this would be accepted. Like, I'd be very curious if, let's just say, WrestleMania 22, if instead of appearing on Supercard of Honor, they just put this exact match on WrestleMania 22. It still probably would have gotten over, right?
0: It would have. I will say, rewatching the match, and I'm curious about your opinion on this, I still think this match is fantastic. And I think, in particular, those final seven or eight minutes still feel special to me. But I would say, like, the body of the match up to that, while very good, like, that does feel like wrestling has caught up to that. And in a way, like, that's, in a way, the biggest compliment you can give this match. Because I feel like any match that's really influential or, like, groundbreaking or whatever, like, usually, not just matches, but, like, movies or anything. A lot of times, if you revisit that years and years later, it does lose a little bit in the sense of so many people have copied it and iterated on it. And, you know, you know, and this is a match, you know, where so many people now are trying to do their version of this match. So in a way I do feel like parts of it, like up until those final seven or eight minutes, people would probably go, Oh yeah, I see this kind of match on a lot of shows. And it's really good. But those last seven or eight minutes, I think are still out of this world. And I think, Anything that ages badly on this, which again, not even badly, is just because it's a compliment. It's just because so many people have now tried to do their version of this.
1: You know, yeah, you know, I don't know how much I agree with you on that. Like, I, I mean, I think to a point, I agree that like, you know, there there were just so many combos that you see so many teams emulating since then. But there was still something about these teams in the early, like even the slow, quote unquote, slow parts in the early in the match are like really fast, like. You still don't see a guy do what Masato Yoshino does with the running the ropes and all no. that. I mean, like, that's just like, even at the very beginning, that's different. You know, like, uh, I don't know if it's possible for people to catch up with that because he was just so incredibly fast running the ropes and doing those moves, you know, and like, just like, it's ever, just because of the little nuances of the characters and the way they move, even like the basic, quote unquote, most basic stuff in the match is super entertaining,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: like, so like, yes. And technically speaking, that stuff is not so groundbreaking anymore, but the way it's executed, I still think elevates these guys to another level that you don't see even now most teams being able to emulate, if that makes sense.
0: Like, I would, I see, I, in some ways, I agree, but I also think, like, just you know, we have some great recent examples, right? Because AEW just did that Trials tournament, and I think some of the top matches in that trios tournament, like, in terms of just wow factor. I don't think they're that far off from this, but I think that's only because, you know, they have years of wrestlers building towards the, I mean, this was the goal, right? Like this. But match also, like, the because, goal. And
1: again, those also did involve people that were like considered like the best in the world, right? Like that's like yeah. Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay and stuff, you know, like that's, it's not like just like, Oh, every team that wants to do a trios match, like we'll do this now, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, and just going to the match itself, I mean, obviously we just talked about, <laughs> I mean, it, it's just amazing. I, I really do focus on those last seven or eight minutes because I feel like it is just one big move, one near fall, one innovative double or triple team after another. It just does not let up. And the fans were into the match from the very start, but during the body of it, there's an occasional moments where the match slows down and they would get a little quiet in turn. But then it's like those last seven or eight minutes, the crowd goes nuts where, um, the crowd goes from chanting, this is awesome, to maybe the first please don't stop chant I can recall ever hearing.
1: Which is the forerunner to fight forever.
0: Yeah, and then to generally just losing their minds. And I've, one of the biggest compliments I can give this match, Matt, is a lot of times in modern wrestling, I feel like we see, especially we'll see in the coming years of Ring of Honor, matches that kind of overshoot the mark where like you can hear the crowd kind of peak, and then they do a bunch more near falls. And even though the crowd's still into it, you kind of can tell, oh... Like, there was a peak that they kind of missed. And there were so many points in this match in those last seven or eight minutes, even re where I go, that's the peak. No, that's the peak. And the crowd never burns out. They just get hotter and hotter, and they keep finding new peaks. And I felt like there were so many near-falls in this match that the crowd would have happily accepted as the finish. But rather than ever reaching a point where the crowd's like, okay, this is too much. We're kind of numb. You did too much. Instead, it's like every time they kind of go past a peak, the crowd gets more into it, like, almost like they're thinking, really? Like, you're giving us more? Like, oh, thank you so much like we can't believe you're you're going even further and I feel like there's so many matches that don't have that feeling right where you there is a peak and here it's just like they're almost surprised they're getting so much
1: yeah I mean I mean I think that is part of the deal is that they were like we're gonna give you more than you knew was possible and just keep going going going. There I mean there was again there were still fun parts of that the early quote slower parts of the match. Like you even get a little bit of Dragon Kid selling his back early on but doesn't really <laughs> last for super long. You know, like Blood Generation were supposed to be the heels here, right? But yeah. like good luck getting the crowd to treat either of the teams as heels, you know? But like they do some cool stuff like when they you know when they do get on a submission you know, uh, the blood generation will like block the do fixer guys from getting into the ring. There's like, there's a lot of spots where like two guys hold somebody and like somebody jumps on. You know, just too many spots to list. But yeah, it's it's the speed and the uh, abundance uh, of the of the big spots and how and the pace, the relentlessness of how quickly they come at you so like yeah i I even mentioned this on the last show. I wasn't going to take notes on all the moves yeah. but but you know the big spot where Seema does the double stomp on on Saito and then like rolls into the backstabber on Horaguchi in the corner, and then the Schwein on uh, Schwein on Dragon Kid for two is just like such an incredible sequence, uh which is what leads to that fight forever chant just there's just so much incredible stuff um yeah it's I mean. Uh, You know, again, like what makes the match special is not only the moves, but like the pace and not only the pacing, the execution, but also the charisma and the personality. Like even though I feel like I didn't get deep psychology out of the match, these, they were projecting themselves like in such a way where you still cared about them, even though you really, you know, a lot of this crowd didn't really know like who they were as characters. I don't want to underplay that. Like, these guys really had a lot of charisma and a lot of personality. Like I think that that's definitely an important part of the package.
0: Yeah, you could tell they have charisma, which is hard because, again, this is a match where you don't really have much time to like emote and play a character. But yet they still show off that they have charisma. And you can see little glimmers of distinctive styles here. They're like, oh, that guy's more of the hard hit and clearly like a guy like Dragon Kid. He is more of just the – he's going to take a bit more of a beating, but he's the the, the top flyer here and stuff like that. And yeah, to be able to even get across that you have charisma in a match where you, where for the last half you really don't have time to do much but just sprint into moves, I think is a, is a, an achievement. But, um, one thing you know, and I know we've differed on this in the past. I'm not a huge fan of the commentary. We've talked about this before when Ray of Honor has done this. C- decides we're not going to do commentary because this match is too good for commentary. This match I feel like they kind of found closer to a happy medium where. They let the guys commentate most of the match, and then the final hottest minutes, they have them duck out where they go. You know, this action speaks for itself, which they always It would always be kind of
1: impossible to call it anyway. I feel like they could have done it without doing it officially, though. You know, like they could have laid out just you know, and, and but still been there. Um, feel less, a little less contrived, but yeah, you didn't really miss it because what could they have said anyway?
0: Yeah, and uh I don't know if you have anything else to say about the match before we get to the reaction. I mean, I, I, w- I will say to people, this is one of those matches Ring of Honor has uploaded on their official YouTube legally. So this is one of those matches that really, as much as we can describe it, you, it's really seeing as believing. So I know we have a few younger listeners, people that watch along with us. Like, this is one of those matches where even if you, for some reason, just, like, listening to our show and not watching along with us, like, if you have not seen this match, I do not say this often during the show, like, Go watch you, you. You really. This is important, even just for wrestling history. You should watch this match, and it's free and legal on YouTube. So there's no excuse to not see this.
1: Yeah, I um I have more to say, but I think it's more related to the reaction to the match. Okay. So I'll save it for that.
0: Well, we can get right to that because there is a lot of stuff because that, in, in some ways, becomes the story of this match as well. It's just how the reaction... Uh, we'll go to the Observer first. Dave Meltzer would write, Gabe Sapolsky is attempting to get as many of his wrestlers as possible booked with Dragon Gate after seeing the guys in action in their element at WrestleMania weekend. He wants his wrestlers to both learn the style, which he called X Division 5 years from now, as well as personal presentation because all the Dragon Gate guys have the look of stars and have distinct characters. Sapolsky felt that the um, March 31st trios match the one we just reviewed they did in Chicago it was among the best matches in company history he also made this comment about the match quote and I think Matt this is the comment you've been alluding to for a couple shows now quote I think there th- I think where this match will be unjustly crit- criticized is that people will say it was just a spot best yes They don't really give the crowd time to breathe or wait for the crowd to be done cheering before going to the next spot. But to say it lacks psychology will be very ignorant. If you look at how the spots are placed and when they are done and how the finishes are protected, you'll see that these guys actually have a very advanced psychology. It is not the traditional American psychology, but it's definitely there. The part that really blew me away was that before the match, Shima told me that this was Dragon Kid's match. If you look at where they put Dragon Kid's big spots and how they say the one major kick out for him, you'll see that the psychology is really strong. The place was chaining Dragon Kid after the match, and so so it is obvious that, that their plan worked. So, okay, that's the first initial thing, which was I think going to you the idea of trying to push back against the idea that they don't have um, psychology. My, my opinion is, there's multiple levels of psychology. Like There's psychology of selling and telling a story of the match, and there's also just like match construction psychology, which people, I think, sometimes overlook, which is stuff like that, which is like, End with your biggest spot, or okay, this is a match with six people. Who's going to get the focus? You know, stuff like that. And yeah, clearly, when people say, "Oh, a spot test has no spot thought into it," just because it doesn't have a lot, a lot of like long-term selling or stuff, doesn't mean there isn't a ton of thought put into a match like this.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean like I never was going to argue this mask didn't have psychology. I think what I would say is like the depth of the psychology and like the protecting of the finishers and all that stuff like I don't think that was going to be readily apparent to the uninitiated viewer like you know. I, when I watched this match, I didn't know what the finishers even were. You know, like, so how was I going to know they were protected? Um, stuff like that. Like, but it definitely is true that Dragon Kid did become the focus down the stretch. Like, that's, you know, it's very clear that was intentional. So like, you know, I'm never going to argue this match didn't have psychology. It was more like, that's not what, that's not what really drew people to the match, especially people that were not familiar with Dragon Gate in the first place.
0: And I feel like stuff like that too. It's like if it works, a lot of that stuff probably goes under the category of if it's done well. We should know. We should notice it, right? I, yeah, like, de-
1: definitely, definitely. But like, as like, somebody who's who's like, you know, we're trying to at- micro analyze these matches. It's not like there's so much nuance to talk about. Like that's readily apparent. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with your point there. Like, I think what you put on again about like the pace and and the intricacies and all that stuff. Like, I think that's the influential stuff. And I feel like almost pure maybe like if i don't know if this is exactly what you're saying but maybe overhype the psychology standpoint of this match a little bit just because they were getting defensive about like the haters who were just like oh this is just moves like th- there's a happy middle between those two things of like
1: yeah yeah it definitely wasn't just moves so that's for yeah. sure
0: but that at the same time the psychology isn't necessarily i think why this match is what it is right either like that's not it's it's crowning achievement but um going to the pro wrestling torch uh, they would write – again, I just I just put this in here too because Gabe was going around telling everybody the same thing. He was said uh, regarding the response of fans to the Dragon Gate wrestlers last weekend, Gabe Sapolsky says the Dragon Gate guys were out of this world. They are five years ahead of us. And I also put this here because I just thought that's another point I wanted to make, which is one thing I think that Rayvar also helped Dragon Gate with is I feel like a lot of promotions, even small indie promotions like one smaller than Ring of Honor – They're very prideful, like even when they bring in outside things, they always want to make us look like we're better than they're like we're the best. And Ring of Honor, in their handling of Dragon Gate this weekend, was very selfless, like they had that best of three which, granted, I don't think many fans took seriously as like, oh, this is going to decide who's the best promotion, but like they had a best of three match series that was billed as, you know, Ring of Honor versus Dragon Gate. They let Dragon Gate win that series. And then here, you know, Gabe wasn't saying like, oh, they're pretty good and they're on the level of Ring of Honor. Like Gabe was going to every every media cycle and basically saying these guys are five years ahead of us. We want to get as many of our guys going there and learning the style as possible. Like they were, they were putting over Dragon Gate in a way bigger than Ring of Honor. They were putting over Ring of Honor for this weekend. Yeah, I
1: mean – I mean, on the one hand, like, yeah, that was selfless. On the other hand, like, yeah, Dragon Gate's a bigger company, right, in Japan than ROH was here, right? I mean, is that fair to say? So it'd be silly to pretend otherwise, and it'd be silly to act like what they did wasn't something that, you know, nobody in the U.S. could have done at this point. So, like...
0: You say that, but a lot of promotions have have fucked up a lot of opportunities over... Less over being like, oh, we can't, our guys can't lose to your guys. Oh yeah, you know, but, I mean,
1: it's, but listen, it's it's true that ROH was, you know, whatever you want to say about Gabe and whatever, like he was more honest about that kind of stuff and was more selfless and like did put over international and like outside groups and stuff like that. It's just true. Like there wasn't this WWE mentality of like, you know, no, our way is the way. It's like no, like there there's a world out there and this is part of it. And it's an amazing part of it, and we can learn something from it. I think that's a you know it's a, the right way to be, and I think it's not surprising to me that Gabe took that approach either.
0: You know, something I just thought that probably also works into in their favor being able to be the selfless is. There was, st- and we'll get to this a little bit later. There was still a barrier for or entry for watching Japanese wrestling, especially a company like Dragon Gate, where you probably had to order it. You know, this was before easy online availability and seeing shows as they happen. Even like you had to buy tapes and DVDs from like, you know, people that you know were not officially licensed to sell it. You know, burning copies. So there's also probably this idea of we can say Dragon Gate is better because how many fans are we going to lose to Dragon Gate? You know, like, um. You know, if, if they had said, like, if if they had said, you know, like, PWG is five years ahead of us, which one wouldn't have been true at this time, but let's say they did, there might have been more in the, in the back of their head, the very real possibility people would go, well, a PWG DVD is just the same price and the same difficulty to acquire as a Ring of Honor DVD, so if they're telling me it's better, but it's like the Dragon Gate stuff, it's like, well, I can see P- Ring of Honor live, you know, it's easier to get the Ring of, I get the official Ring of Honor DVDs, so there's a little bit less of a fear of, like, we're going to send everybody away to Dragon Gate. Like, you, you know, Dragon Gate at this point in wrestling had a ceiling for U.S. fans, probably. Oh, for sure. Uh, um, that brings us to the Observer. And this was when Dave finally got the DVD and he, uh, he broke it out his review into not the Ring of Honor section to its own review. And this was like one of the big, most important Dave, you got to see this kind of reviews he ever gave. Ring of Honor probably sold a lot of DVDs. I, I cut out a few parts of it, but this is, the bulk of it, um, Dave wrote, you have to get the DVD of the March 31st Ring of Honor show in Chicago. That's not a recommendation. If you are voting on awards or have even a casual interest in the state of the art modern wrestling, if you don't watch this show, you're behind the curve. I expected a lot from it because every report I got from people who attended that show at Mania two nights later said that this show was better than Mania. And Mania was very good this year. I've written before, if you don't like WWE or TNA, you really should try out Ring of Honor because every show has a wide variety of styles and you should find something to your liking. There are weaknesses weaknesses in that most of the guys are smaller and almost nobody has the freakish steroid look. Not that nobody uses steroids there, but clearly nobody is a bodybuilder looking at wrestling as a way to be a star.
1: Weird that he lists that as a weakness.
0: I was going to say, like, isn't that crazy? Like, like that stage still looking at like the old school business mentality. Like, yeah, the weakness of this company is not everyone is like jacked up at to 290. But, um, yeah, and continuing, um, but the reason the show is different is the Dragon Gate trios match. You had six guys with only a small who only a small percentage of the audience knew. I'd bet aside from Shima, because he's been a genuine Japanese star for years and Dragon Kid because of the costume and because he's been a known super high flyer for a long time, that very few could have even pointed out who was who if they had saw, seen photos of them. Within 15 minutes, to say they had the crowd going nuts was an understatement. This was one of the best matches I've ever seen, and as far as Ring of Honor goes, I can't compare it with Kenta Kobashi versus Samoa Joe because they are completely different, but both were almost perfect in their own ways. One of the there best matches
1: so- he's ever seen, but only gave it five stars. I'm just <laughs>
0: Oh, we'll get to that, Matt. There is something a classic man-on-man match has that this, style, that this style of fast-paced, lightweight trios match can't have. But athletically, obviously, two 270-pound guys can't do what small guys do. But there is no other Ring of Honor match I've seen at this level, and I've seen pretty much all the great matches since the promotion started. It's one that not, It's one that not only would I call five stars, but couldn't even fathom giving it any less. Plus, I was told by many live that it was the match of the year, even before seeing it. So if anything, that's psychologi- psych- psychologically the worst thing to be told ahead of time. They did so much that it would normally be considered numbing if you were told ahead of time what they were going to do, but they ended up having the exact opposite reaction with the audience. It's like the great Hadaka and Fujita matches, with one fast spot after another and everything hitting perfect, but this match was more spectacular, built better, it had a, a stronger crowd reaction. About 19 minutes in, when this they, the match was already off the charts and you knew they were about to go to the finish, the crowd started chanting, please don't stop. I've seen all these guys wrestle a lot of times, and you could see they were at another level because they were in the U.S. Particularly Yoshino, who is as fast in doing his stuff as anyone I've ever seen. Dragon Kid on his own isn't a great worker, but he's a guy who really shines when in and w- when in with a b- great worker, and he's never looked better. It was just a masterpiece of a match, and I'd be stunned if there's anything, if there, if there's even anything close to it, at least in North America this year. When the this is awesome chance start, I was thinking those chants were great. For that Styles versus Daniels versus Joe Threeway last year, but this match was beyond awesome. So yeah, that that is about as lengthy and as effusive, like,
1: effusive enough, a review if I've ever seen from Dave Meltzer. Ever.
0: Like, like him actually outright saying, like, if you don't see this match, you're like behind the times.
1: One of the best matches I've ever seen, beyond awesome. Like just like you, you just I you I don't you can read every Dave Meltzer review ever, including matches he gave seven stars to. There is nothing that is more you know praiseful than that review right there
0: and this is something we've touched on in the past like uh, we we always have to do this nowadays when matches get five stars because it's so different nowadays this was when five stars was rare and dave did not break the i mean yes i know technically he gave steamboat flair six stars in the 80s but no he didn't this... <laughs> he says he did but like he didn't i mean he a, a non-televised one okay there's a non televised one he claims is better than the ones that may I mean, Flair claims that too. For anyway, um, but again, just to keep a reminder, how big this was. There was only seven matches in the entire world. Dave Meltzer gave five stars to in the in the two thousands, and you know the the odds. You know, he gave more in the nineties and the eighties. He gave way, way, way more obviously in the tens and twenties. There was only, in fact, here's a little trivia I looked up. This is the third and final consecutive. You know, Ray of Honor had th- had five star matches for three consecutive years. This is the third and final. The first one was obviously Joe Punk two in two thousand four. Then um, the uh, Joe versus Kobashi in two thousand five. Then this in two thousand six is the final one. Dave Meltzer would not give a match anywhere in the world five stars again for a little more than five years after this match. Is yeah. that match? Do you know what
1: that match is, Matt? A little more than five years. Okay, so that would have been Cena versus Punk?
0: Yeah, Money in the Bank is the next match he gets five stars to. So th- this is it for half – think about that. Dave Meltzer gives like multiple matches five – I mean every two seconds now, we'll match five stars. No offense to Dave. But like this was the last five-star match according to Dave you were going to see for half a decade.
1: Yeah, and like – yeah, I mean – I remember there was like a match, um, you know, very legendary match in 2000, CMLL with Viano Tercero against Atlantis, right? And he would rave yeah. about how amazing that match. If you look back, he gave that match four and a half stars. <laughs> like, th- he's, he's lying when he says that like, this is like, just the way he's always done these star ratings. He's lying to himself, maybe, but like, this was about, like I said, this is the most praise I've ever seen him give a match. And this one got five stars. So. If this match happened now and he felt the same way, it would get like six, right? So,
0: well, well here's the thing: if he gave it five stars today, it wouldn't have had the Im- it wouldn't have the impact that him giving it five stars did back then. Because yeah, you would need to give scale. it at least six.
1: Yeah, he broke the scale and doesn't either is not admitting that he did or is does not realize that he did. I don't know which is, which it is.
0: Like for Dave to give a match five stars in the odds was the you know, whether whatever you think about Dave Meltzer, he you know, he was an influencer and tastemaker obviously of his own. I mean, I like Dave Meltzer, but there's certainly flaws to him. But whatever you feel about him, his reviews meant a ton back then. And for him at in this decade to give a match five stars was basically him saying. You have to go out of the way to see this because you might not even see a match this good in a given year, you know, or in yeah. this case, in a given half decade. You right, know?
1: right. There's this idea that five stars is like match of the year candidate, but like five stars used to be like best match ever candidate.
0: Yeah. Like like this is going to be one of the best wrestling experiences you have in your life where if you believe that now, you're having basically, according to Dave Meltzer, one of the best wrestling experiences of your life like every three weeks now. But – yeah. Um, but, Matt, you said you haven't heard a, a review that positive. I have one more note, and this is Bruce Mitchell's review, and it might be further. And Bruce Mitchell, you know, did not watch Dragon Gate at all, you know, was more of an old Crockett, you know, a veteran of the Crockett years and all that stuff, who'd watched a bit of stuff. This is Bruce Mitchell's review of this match. He didn't even review every Ring of Honor show for The Torch. He usually A lot of times he ducked down on a lot of those reviews. He wrote... The Dragon Gate Do-Fixer vs. Blood Generation match is, hands down, the greatest pro wrestling match I've ever seen. I've seen most, if not all, of the best matches internationally and domestically of the past three decades, and this one beats them all. It's state-of-the-art. As this match gets seen by more people, you're going to hear half-smart internet critics criticize it for being a spot fest. Ignore them they'll be dazzled by the spots as you will be because they're faster, more spectacular and more precise than anything ever seen in this business. This match though is much more than spots. It builds one draw jaw dropping sequence at a time, pulling you into the story of the match, the battle between these two dragon gate gangs do fixer and blood generation until one of these wrestlers makes himself to makes himself to the biggest crown in ring of honor history. This thing will have you cheering and pumping your fist. And when you're not holding your head in grateful, awe, it's exci- is a, It's exciting as all hell. So again, like those were the kind of reviews from people that normally would not talk about anything in this scene. Like Dave would talk about Japanese wrestling, but even he would not talk about Dragon Gate to this extent. Bruce would never talk about this stuff, basically saying this is, I mean, not basically, outright saying this is the greatest match I've ever seen in my life. But, and that meant a lot, I assume, for DVD sales and all of that stuff. So before we finally move on from this, I guess my one question to you is. Where do you think this ranks in the pantheon of great Ring of Honor matches? And I realize that's hard because I'll, I'll say this: I think there's so many great matches. Like stylistically, it comes down to like what you prefer. And for me, it also comes down to like personal emotional connection. Like to me, this is in the top tier. It deserves to be there with Joe versus Kobashi, the final two Punk Joe matches. I'd put Corino Homicide from Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies up there. But to me. I don't put this match, this will probably be on the, it's in that group, but it's probably on the bottom end for me, just because those matches, I love lots of styles. Those matches, other matches are more my style. And with particularly with stuff like Joe versus Kobashi and the Joe Punk matches, I have like an emotional connection to those matches I don't have with this match. And, you know, if I was a Dragon Gate fan from day one, maybe I would. So I don't mean to downplay this match at all, but, you know, like, I, I was just thinking about asking you that one because you've watched all this stuff with me, but also because, you know, Dave Meltzer even making a point to say, you know, I've watched all the biggest Ring of Honor matches and this is him basically saying he was kind of seemingly like debating with himself about Joe versus Kabashi but saying this is better. Like, to me, Heart of Hearts, I still love those Punk-Joe final two matches better than this.
1: Well, first of all, this one Wrestling Observer match of the year. Right, and it's the yeah. second of three consecutive ROH matches to win that award, and I don't think there were any after that that I can remember. Um, so, like, obviously, this was a super influential match, but like as you mentioned before, there's some thoughts on like how much you even consider this an, a Ring of Honor match because it was an import and it was a bunch of guys that were not Ring of Honor wrestlers, and not a single regular Ring of Honor wrestler was in the match. Um, obviously, ROH presented it. They gave them the platform. They gave them the crowd that was hungry for it. So, I'm not going to say it's not a Ring of Honor match. It was on a Ring of Honor show. To watch it, you had to buy a Ring of Honor DVD. Like, but, you know, but, um, you know, when I think about the Ring of Honor matches, it means something to me. You know, obviously, they're going to be with the people that I followed closely and their whole career trajectory, which is not these guys for, you know, better or for worse. Um, you know, even, you know, there were Japanese wrestlers that you did get to sort of follow a path with an, with an ROH, Kenta in particular. So, like, when I see a match with him, usually it's against a more regular ROH guy, first of all, but it feels a little bit more like an ROH match, if that makes sense. So, like, when it, would come, when it came time for me to decide what I thought was the 2006 match of the year, ROH otherwise, as much as I thought this match was amazing and deserved to win, it wouldn't be a match that I picked, There are a few ROH matches in 2006 that just hold a more special place to me and are more the style that I would find, you know, just – I don't know, that I would sink my teeth into more, I guess would be a way I'd put it. Um, So, no, this isn't the greatest match in ROH history to me. If you wanted to say it was, I would say you're probably right in in your own way. But like for me, for what I connect to, for what I like the most, there's a lot of matches ahead of it. Um, if that makes sense.
0: No, I, I love that you brought like the I forgot like the rest of this year like that'll be a great thing to follow for on this podcast because like I can I mean I won't make a judgment until I rewatch everything but again I don't want to act like I'm sliding this match because it's an amazing like I said the most influential match we'll ever cover well, amazing if, if, match if you
1: listened to this podcast just now and decided we were sliding this match I don't think you were listening
0: yeah but um I will say like. By the time we we're done rewatching 2006, this match might not only not, not be my. Uh, I could very easily see that this match not being my number one match of the Ring of Honor match of the year. It might not be my number two Ring of Honor match of the year. Like, not to tip my hand, but there are. I I, I know what you're talking about. Like, there are matches coming up that maybe are, for me for me probably not in my top three. Wow. See, like that. Like, I mean, that that's gonna be the interesting. Again, that's gonna be the really interesting to follow, which is like. How well, many well, I can,
1: well, just off the top of my head right now, unless they really don't hold up, I can think of four matches in ROH in 2006 that hold a special place for me above this one, four just off the top of my head.
0: And, and I do think that's a good point where, you know, when we people so focus on so many star rings and stuff, I do think that there's a point to be made about not just wrestling, but everything, which is like, when you get to a certain level of quality at some point, like a personal connection starts to matter more and more. Yeah, any
1: any of those matches could be the best match, you know, whatever, but, like, the one that works the best for you is the best one for you.
0: Like, the comparison I make is there's a lot of albums I love to listen to, but my favorites aren't necessarily are they the absolute best. No, they're the great albums that, like, meant something to me in my life. Like, oh, I played this one over and over after a breakup, or, oh, like, I got really good news and I listened to this song and it came out at the exact right moment, like... At or or it
1: just hits your taste the the best, you know? Exactly, the, yeah. the idea, the, the idea that, like, you're going to look at a bunch of, like, albums of music and be like, yeah, there's one really objective, uh, best album ever, obviously that's ridiculous, right? Like, the, the, there's no way to quantify that at all. Yeah. It's a combination of so many factors. Some some objective and some absolutely personal.
0: And and that's one thing I think people should try, we should try and normalize more is the idea of people going, why did this match get, you know, four and three quarters? And why did this one get five? Like you're saying this one's better. It's like when you get to that level of quality at at the the upper end of like anyone's personal range, at some point it's going to matter. Again, it's going to matter like, Well, which match personally kind of like hits your, like you said, your tastes more or do these certain wrestlers in this one match have more of like a connection to you personally? Like, you know, I've been following this promotion forever and this other promotion, not as much. All that stuff makes a big difference when the matches are all really good. And, um, yeah, that's maybe the one weakness this match is going to have for a lot of people. Um, And I should also mention one last thing, uh, case low wrote, uh, I I don't know where the, like I dig, it's on the voices of wrestling site somewhere. If you look up case low, all his articles are there about this match and he made some great points too. And just stuff reading while I was doing research. So I I didn't have anything that I was a direct quote from him, but I just wanted to, uh, bring that up too. So want to give credit where credit is due. And again, thank you, Alan, for the, the, the talk he gave me too, which was very enlightening. Um, so, immediately after the match, we get a huge standing ovation, maybe the biggest in Ring of Honor history up to this point, a Dragon Gate chant, we get handshakes among the teams, a That Was Awesome chant, do Fixer or pose on the turnbuckles, Genki Horiguchi and Dragon Kid excitedly backflip off, like, they said really pumped, like, you know, they know they just killed this, and um, we get a rare Ring of Honor instant replay of the finish, even, so you know it's a big deal, and then Matt... We get an FIP ad for Heatstroke 005, a, a sh- sh- recently released DVD for the FIP promotion featuring a ton of wrestlers like CM Punk, Spanky, and James Gibson that have no longer, or were even on the indies at all at this point. I looked it up just to be checking. So this is a show that was, you know, this show happened March 31st 2006 it uh it probably came out a month or two afterwards the heat stroke show DVDs they're promoting like the hot new release for FIP those shows happened in early August 2005 so wow that's
1: actually quick for them <laughs>
0: Next, we find Nigel McGinnis backstage, somewhere that isn't this show, clearly, because he was not on this show. Nigel says they're calling this weekend the biggest in Ring of Honor history, and people are asking, where's Nigel McGinnis? He says he's here in Japan with Pro Wrestling Noah, defending the Ring of Honor pure belt all over the world, making it the real world's championship because he's defending it all over the world. Nigel says he's the greatest champion in Ring of Honor history and recounts all the guys he's beaten, including saying he's the one of only two Ring of Honor wrestlers to beat Samoa Joe twice, the other being Austin Aries. And Nigel points out, "Well, I made Austin Aries tap out too." He says one name keeps getting brought up again and again, though, and it's Brian Danielson. People keep telling me that Brian Danielson's better than me. Nigel then says, "Though Brian hasn't beaten the people I've beaten, and he hasn't defeated defended his title all over the world like I have." He says Danielson is the underdog. He's the re-, Nigel's the real world champion. Nigel then talks about internet geeks thinking that there are wrestlers better than him. So Nigel promo. It was a good promo and we are building to Danielson and Nigel. I it is kind of sad that Nigel is like the one guy who does not get major guy that doesn't. Well, I guess you could say the Briscoe too, but they just came back. Like, you know, it would have been nice to see Nigel on these shows, but you know, you can't turn down a big opportunity to go work for Noah.
1: Yeah, I love this promo. I love like the mission statement promo. It's like it's a turning point for Nigel during this time period, and when he comes back, he's going to be that you know, that new version of Nigel much more close to it. And he's about to have that big match with Danielson, you know, just like, you know, maybe like a month after this. So like, yeah, this, this is a big turning point for Nigel McGuinness, And he goes on to have, you know, one of the great runs in ROH history. So I think this is, this is another plus for the show that they have this promo on there.
0: Absolutely. This is like the opposite of the cornet promo. Like, it's, it accomplishes a lot, and it's good, and it, it's not homophobic. <laughs> the, the Holy Trinity, Matt, of wrestling promos. Um, and that brings us to our first match back for intermission. A six-man mayhem, or in, I guess I would say in this case, a six-woman mayhem, the first in Ring of Honor history match. Mischief defeated Allison Danger, Cheerleader Melissa, Daisy Hayes, Lacey, and Rain in eight minutes, 44 seconds, when she pinned Rain after hitting the Desecrator, uh, Matt, this was the, put obviously in the ultimate death spot of death spots, you know, the first match after the Dragon Gate match. Um, three of these women. You know, making their Ring of Honor debuts, that would be Mischief, Cheerleader Melissa, and, uh, Rain. Rain, normally, uh, Lacey's partner on the Indies as the, one of my favorite tag team names of all time, the Minnesota Home Wrecking Crew, which is just a great tag team a, name. Oh, a really
1: great name. Uh, but I should yeah. mention also, since so so I didn't, Blood Generation, also a really incredible name. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. but, but Minnesota Home Wrecking Crew, yeah, that's, a, that's on another level. That's great.
0: Um, uh, Matt, what'd you think about this? I mean, you know, in a way, you know, like, it's a nice spot for the one to get shot on a show this big, but another way, it's six people having to fight for less than nine minutes right after the biggest match, maybe in Ring of Honor history.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it was tough. I mean, for that, I mean, so yeah, this was after intermission, right? So they did have that little buffer. Yeah. It wasn't like they they came out right after that match, like they would on like a a pay per view or something. So at least they had that going for them. But yeah, no, it was tough to get the crowd here. You know, clearly, like they wanted to, they had they had just had that that really successful four-way women's match the week earlier uh, in new york and this match didn't hit the way that one did but they did work hard um i think um you know mischief was maybe a standout in terms of like she she got to have a lot of focus she obviously won the match um she you know hit some impressive stuff and i think the main story here was that cheerleader melissa and mischief were involved in a feud and were sort of going at each other down the stretch but besides that it was just like a lot of people doing moves you know they they immediately start the match with a bunch of people going for pinning combos and breaking it up and the crowd just really didn't react that much you know again they were just kind of in the death the death spot there um but you know mischief she did some extremely impressive neck bridges but i have to say that when it comes to neck bridges she was number two on the night for doing a lot of impressive <laughs> neck bridges. Um, But she tried. You know, certain people just are really good at neck bridging, and it's hard to top them, Um, which we'll get to later. But um they do this complicated spa where everyone gets a hold on everyone except for Lacey, who just comes in and slaps Daisy Hayes in the stomach to break it all up. I really had a hard time writing down what this – to describe this convoluted, like – uh I don't know, a a twister of wrestling holds was, but uh, just trust me in saying that everyone had a hold on everybody. Um, Mischief at one point does a pretty good splash onto a pile outside. Um, Hayes (laughs) was... I, complained about this the week before. Hayes was not really much of a heel. Um, she did a little bit of stuff the week before, but like here, she prompts the crowd to cheer her on as she does a top rope moonsault, and then she high fives someone in the front row after she does it. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, I mean, I get it. You're, you're not used to doing it, but like, you know, could have tried. Not a big deal, but it's worth noting. Um, but yeah, at, at, by the end, um, you know, they, they start doing the, the big kickouts um uh, melissa back suplexes lacy rain larry it's melissa mischief does a sit out tree slam to to rain then danger comes in and hits the shimmering warlock which is one of my all-time favorite move names to mischief and everyone is down then mischief hits a code green and Alice in danger see mischief wore green um it was a code red but she called it a code anyway uh, <laughs> lacy hits an implant ddt on mischief Hayes breaks that up Hayes heart punches and Yakuza kicks Lacey. Rain breaks that up. So you can see the pattern here. Rain hits the acid rain, um, electric chair slam bridging thing, which is a pretty cool spot. Um, and Melissa breaks that up. Melissa hits the air raid crash on Rain. Mischief breaks that up. Mischief hits, gets a two cat off a standing moonsault on Melissa. And then Melissa gets an inverted clover leaf on Mischief and totally bends her leg in this like, ridiculously disgusting way making mischief kick her own head and it takes multiple kicks by Hayes to get melissa to break that hold then melissa charges mischief a few times until mischief hits green miss uh, excuse, excuse me until mischief green Misses melissa while the ref is distracted then hits her desecrator which is like a ddt with her leg over the arm on rain and gets the win um so you could tell like they they were doing a lot of moves there but like there wasn't a ton of reaction to it, and there wasn't a lot of holding it all together. Um, they tried, but – and it was above average definitely for an ROH women's match, but I wouldn't say it was anything on the level of the match the week before.
0: Yeah, um, I agree. I uh, The biggest compliment and negative I can give the match are the same thing, which is it felt like a nine-minute six-person mayhem match where it's you know very sloppy, hept- hectic. It's not boring, though. And, you know, it has a lot of the same tropes you'd expect in any multi person Ring of Honor match of this era. Like, there's a very ugly sequence at the beginning where everyone tries to pin somebody else. There's a sequence you mentioned where everyone is putting someone else into a submission at the same time. There's the couple two big dives to the floor from Mischief and Daisy Hayes. You know, it, it has that vibe a lot of these very short matches with a ton of people have, which is it feels less like a match and more like an audition where it's a lot of. One person steps in the ring, hits a move on somebody else. The person that just took the move rolls out of the ring. Someone else steps in the ring, hits their move on the person that just hit a move. So on and just, you know, it's, it's just that over and over where like there's no constructive, there's no connective tissue. There's, there, it's, it's just an audition and. But you know what? I've seen men's women, so I guess in a sense that's progress. And it was exciting, even if it was very sloppy. I agree Mischief was the standout because she got to show some personality. And I like that they carried over, like you mentioned, the Melissa and Mischief feud from Shimmer. And the announcers made sure to inform us of that. You know, decent. And, and they, I'll say this. The crowd was not amazing for this, but they were more into it than I would have guessed. They, 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 they got
1: happened. more into it as it went along, which is a good sign.
0: Uh, and then how about this for a backhanded compliment from Dave, which again really shows the, the, the times that we were living in back in 2006. Dave Ron the Observer, when he was um, pr- praising the entire show, he goes, this show even has a women's match where none of the women were sleezing it up for a reaction. It's like, I mean, in a way, like that is like true. Like that, it was a more of a rare treat. But I I also think the phrase here kind of makes it sound like yeah, blaming
1: blaming the women for that instead of the promoters.
0: Yeah, yeah, like the women were told like that was the. But you know, it is it does show you know as much as we complain about where women's wrestling is today, and it still has a ways to go to be reach equality, like. This was, like, a normal comment in 2006. Like, it was refreshing just to see any women's match where it's like, oh, it's not about sexual titillation. Like, th- this this is a refreshing change. Like, the bar's been at least been raised that we expect more from res- women's wrestling on mainstream companies than that. Like, th- th- that's not the ground floor for us now. But True. that brings us to Homicide, scored to the ring by Julia Smokes, defeating Mitch Franklin, the future uh, – you no, know, the future Lumberjack via pinfall in two minutes, 35 seconds, the future Grizzly Redwood, after he hit the cop killer. So this was just a short squasher homicide, although Franklin did get a couple moves in, including Matt maybe... The top rope cross by with the smallest vertical leap I've ever seen, as in almost none. He <laughs> just kind of and it but this match, you know, it is just in storyline, it's because it was supposed to be Colt versus homicide, but Colt's out hurt. It served just as a backdrop for the crowd, the chant for Colt Cabana, as the announcers tell us what the match was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a fight without honor, but Colts hurt and the feud is over. Except it isn't. He is after the match, the crowd continues the champ for Colt cabana, and out he comes, Mike in hand. Yes, Thomas, if he thinks the concussion is going to keep him from ending this in his hometown of Chicago, this needs to come to an end, and they're doing it right now. Colt runs in the ring. He and Homicide start brawling. Colt gets the advantage for a few minutes, only periodically stopping to grab his head, sells concussion, because of course that's what you do when you have a concussion—you grab your head once in a while and go, "Oh my head!" Uh He backdrops Homicide through a ringside table, gets him in the ring. Eventually goes for the Colt forty-five. When Julius Smokes hops on the apron, Colt unsuccessfully tries to throw Smokes into the ring. The, the Colt, J- Colt can't get Smokes over on the first attempt, but they get it done on the second try. That distraction allows Homicide to recover. He hits Colt with a hard chair shot to the head. So I hope to God Colt didn't have an actual concussion the day before. Um, followed by a chair throw to the head. Followed by wedging a chair between the top two turnbuckles and throwing Colt into it by, you guessed it, the head. Uh, Colt is now bleeding. Smokes attacks him as Homicide grabs a ladder that is hilariously covered with toilet paper that had been stashed under the ring from the Jimmy Rave entrance earlier. Homicide's cult hits Colt with the ladder and DDTs him on it. The crowd chants her Colt, but Homicide just wedges Commander's head between the ladders, the, the the sides of the ladder. He hits it with a chair multiple times as Praise Zach is just screaming on commentary for them to stop this. Homicide grabs the mic and talks about Colt being Chicago's finest and says if he sees Colt tomorrow night, he's going to end not just his career, but his fucking life, he says. <laughs> Rust check on emotionless cabana. Some fans are really getting into it at ringside with smokes, actually, like getting kind of aggressive with smokes. Smokes calls one fan Mr. Potato Head. And then at this point, Colt's out of the ring. The people have gotten him out of the ring. Homicide and smokes are walking to the back. Chris, Hero, and Necro Butcher walk back through the crowd, back into the ring. The crowd chants, Fuck you, Hero, as Hero gets on the mic and says, What you just saw wasn't ultra violence. CZW is ultra violence. Ring of Honor is garbage. And Pierce and Necro Butcher run into the ring, and now we have a new brawl. Uh, Pierce throws Butcher off the ring apron onto the hard, unpad floor. They brawl into the crowd, where Necro throws chair after chair at Pierce. Pierce fights back and suplexes Necro on the floor and hits him with a bunch of chairs, none of which we see as Necro is not lit in the crowd, only Pierce, like seven chair shots wasted for nothing. Uh, Necro fights back, and they move back to ringside, where Necro throws a chair that looks like it catches Pierce right in the face. It looked... Horrific to take. In the ring, Pierce bites Necro and then goes to suplex Pierce through a ringside table. When Chris Hero reappears, he hits Adam Pierce with a chair. Necro then side Russian leg sweeps Adam Pierce through the table. Jim Cornette then runs in the ring with his baseball bat. He hits Necro with it. Chris Hero immediately puts Cornette in a Fujiwara armbar until Samoa Joe runs in. He takes out Hero. Joe grabs the bat and poses in the ring with it as Hero and Butcher try and flee to the ring entrance only to be met by BJ Whitmer. Hero then runs back into the ring where Joe and Pierce are waiting. Pierce lays out here with a chair shot. BJ hits here with a hard chair shot. BJ Whitmer, Adam Pierce, Samoa Joe celebrating the ring with Cornette. As we get a big ring of honor chant, Cornette grabs the mic, tells security to dump this garbage in the dumpster out back says, let's hear it for the home team. BJ's foot is still in a full ass cast. I should remind you. We then get a rare Adam Pierce chant, a BJ Whitmer chant, a Cornette chant, the four men raise arms. Everyone leaves with Joe, who welcomes Chicago to Ring of Honor. Joe says, to borrow someone else's line, he came here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and he is officially out of bubblegum. He wants his match to start right now. Matt, before we get to that, that's a lot. So that is a classic kind of Ring of Honor ECW. One segment bleeds into another, into another kind of thing. I thought it was exciting and pretty well done. I mean, it's not going to be the most memorable chapter of the feud, but I thought, good. You know, that was my opinion.
1: Um... So, for me, I mean, I think I saw them as, like... I mean, obviously, they bled into another, but I saw them separately. You know, the Homicide yeah. and Cabana and the CZW thing. Um, when it came to Homicide and Cabana, um, I feel like, in a vacuum, it was a good brawl, but has, having watched all these shows, I feel like it was just one of those too many for me. Like, yeah. it's just like, alright, enough already with these guys, like, not having the real match. And I get it, they're trying to get from day one to day three so they could have the match, but... I feel like I could have just as easily had Cabana come out and cut a promo here for the next night instead of doing another one of these brawls. Like, oh, no, he's hurt him again. Even Homicide saying that he was going to end Cabana's life. All right? At this point, it's like, okay, blasé. Like, it's boilerplate. Like, he's he's tried to murder and threatened to murder Cabana like a 100,000 times, so it's not a shocking thing for him to say. So I just feel like I'm, I'm glad that we're finally getting to the match tomorrow. I – you know there were things that were good about the angle, things I didn't like. I think overall, I thought it was good, and I thought they did a good job of of letting it extend out over whatever like seven months. but this was this this brawl right here felt just like this was like it for me. This was gratuitous. I'm like all right enough i'm I'm done with these brawls at this point. Let's just have the final match already
0: I, I don't know does that make sense? Yeah, I feel like if we – going back to the last show, I feel like I just hit this exact same point you did one show earlier because I feel like I basically just said what you said at the homicide cult thing at the start of the last show. So, yeah, I think we're both kind of pretty in sync of – it's just – you know, and we've seen this with Ray on a before, right, where it just goes on a little too long. It hits the same note a little too frequently.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, it did have some fun stuff like Julius Smokes saying that Walter Payton should be rolling in his grave right now because I guess Walter Payton was a big Colt Cabana fan uh in the, <laughs> when he was like, I don't know, training in the 90s? I don't know. Like – uh but yeah. Well, I, Chicago I, Bear. Yeah. I just thought it was so funny where like we're supposed to be shocked that Homicide says, I'm going to end your fucking life. It's like, yeah, no shit. You tried like seven times right in front of all of us. Um <laughs> You know when, when diminishing returns, right? When when you get yeah. in a situation like that. Uh, as far as the CZW brawl, I th- I pretty much agree with you. It was good, fine. Um, but you know I think two things could have made it better. One, you could see what was happening in the uh, in the crowd between Necro and Adam Pierce. Like there was a spot where you saw Pierce just like like repeatedly chair shotting darkness like it was just like because you couldn't see necro at all in that moment like and and i think in a brawl like that it would have also been more entertaining i know this was just roh policy that when it's not an official match you don't have any commentary but like would have been better with commentary i think um otherwise again it was another thing that was just like keeping it going it wasn't advancing anything it was just keeping it going getting big pops for the roh guys and i guess establishing that these were like the three um you know i guess uh, um flag bearers for roh they were the um they were the people that were going to defend them in a, what would be eventually the six man at war at um at the 100th show
0: yeah i feel like that was the big the, the one development is like although again yeah they been basically done that on the last show but basically kind of showing you like this is the team you know that's going to represent us coming up but That brings us to the semi-main event, the three-way match. Samoa Joe defeated Jimmy Jacobs and Christopher Daniels in nine minutes, 14 seconds when he made Jacobs tap up to the rear naked choke. So yes, this was originally supposed to be Joe Daniels and Whitmer kind of combining the, the two Daniels feuds. But uh, obviously Whitmer had pulled out of the next two nights of the triple shot after he broke his ankle, either via the Jimmy Jacobs match or the nefarious actions of the CCW wrestlers. Um, Before the match starts, we get some waving cell phones from Jacob for Jacob's entrance. Lacey gets on the mic to tell Jimmy that this is a great opportunity for him tonight. Um, when Christopher Daniels makes his entrance, we can hear him actually say to Jacobs, what are you even doing here, Jimmy? Which I thought was a nice touch. Like he's still expecting Whitmer to be in the match. Um, I thought as a match, this was enjoyable enough. Uh, I thought Jacobs replacing Whitmer here actually adds a fun dynamic to what would other pro- probably otherwise just be a nondescript random three-way. Like he had some comedy early with Daniels and Joe both going to war and having no interest in Jacobs, no selling him and fighting him off until he bis- he stomps both their feet and hits with a- them with a double drop kick to get their attention. Uh He does get some offense throughout the match. We get some character work as well. Like he uh, defends uh, Lacey at one point. Uh, Joe and like. He get Joe's going to go after Lacey on the apron, but instead, you know, Jacob's defender accidentally bonks into her. He ends up spending a bunch of time on the floor, like, apologizing to her. Um, the match itself, you know, it's it's a sprint. It's it's a nine-minute sprint, which some might be disappointed by its length, but I feel like these guys cut a pretty fast pace because it was nine minutes, and if you did this longer, maybe they wouldn't have. And it's one of those matches where months ago, I might have been disappointed if Samoa Joe's role on a show this big, was a nine minute match where it was just good, but not great. But I feel like we are firmly in the era of Joe in ring of honor, where he's kind of like takes a back seat to a lot of stuff. And, you know, on a show with other great matches that carry the load, I am fine with like a nine minute, um, good, but not great match. And there were some fun moments. Um, Praise that calling Jacobs creeptacular on, um, commentary and also mentioning that the Ballad of Lacey music video is included as a bonus on this DVD, which again shows how big Ring of Honor was into like that music video. The idea they're putting it was probably one of their best selling DVDs ever. Um, Daniel's Urinagi, Jimmy Jacobs onto Joe as he reverse DDT'd Joe. That was really cool. Um, Joe does an elbow suicida that hits both Daniels and Jacobs at the same time. Uh, Jacobs screams top eight and then goes for eight punches on the corner on Joe, like his song where, you know, Lacey put me in your top eight on MySpace, which I realize is a reference our younger listeners will, if there are any, will not get. But uh, Oh, and Jacobs also hits uh, Lacey's finisher, the implant DDT, which I thought was a nice touch. And Jacobs also counters uh, an Angel's Wings into a Rana, which looked really cool. And this match has a rare Samoa Joe super kick, you know, on Christopher Daniels. So, Matt, overall, again, I thought for a nine-minute match, th- that's plenty of fun stuff for me.
1: Yeah, I like this match a lot more than I remembered in the sense of, like, I really didn't remember this match at all. Like, I'd seen it, but I didn't remember it. I, I, I agree with you that the character work and, like, the focus on Jimmy Jacobs added a really fun dynamic to... You know, it's what had, you know, kind of run its course between Daniels and Joe. You know, I liked their match the night before, but I didn't need to see it again. And so I think this kind of, uh, setup allowed me not to see it again. It was, this was something different. Um, you know, they, they do, they, like you said, they do stuff where like they're, Jimmy is the pest trying to prove he matters too. So they knock him out of the way a bunch of times, but then, you know, he does get more focus. Um, and, You know, there there was a cute convoluted spot where Daniels goes for the last rights on Joe, but Jacob stops him. So Daniels lifts Jacobs up and slams him onto Joe while doing an inverted DDT on Joe. Like, very convoluted, but I thought, cute for a match like this. You know, maybe there was some context in a more serious match where I would have been like, all right, that's stupid, but I enjoyed it here. Um I also thought that that double elbow suicida was like really awesome. Like I also liked where he set Jacobs and Daniels on opposite sides of the ringside area. So so he like like that he was going to do oleo ole lay kicks into both of them. But instead he just hits one on Daniels and then Jacobs moves away before he can hit one on him and you could hear an audible ah from the crowd <laughs> when they don't get their second um their second oleo ole lay kick. Also um when Jacobs yells top 8 before going for eight punches in the corner, um, like you mentioned, I, I think that was like he was planning on that being a signature move, <laughs> like like the top eight where he does. But like, I don't think it ever really took off. Did you have a MySpace back in the day?
0: Um, I might have. I, I, if I did, I forget. But like, it was not popular. If it, it was, was not, it, was, it, not it pop- was not
1: a focal point of your of your life. If you had one, you didn't. You didn't. My- it wasn't something that you really paid a lot of attention to.
0: MySpace was like the first site where I was like, oh, I can look up like kids I went to school with. Like, I feel like that's no longer a novelty. It was like the first thing. I feel like that's why most of us like, oh boy, I can see some old friend of mine in high school what like bad, you know, like 30-second clip of an MP3 they have playing on loop on their page here.
1: Yeah, I think I killed MySpace cuz I, I got I got my first one in like 2007 and that was like right when everyone was like okay we're all switching over to facebook now myspace that's it so i um i feel like i was like the i was the person that ended my space that's 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 what i could take credit for um but anyway um as far as the match um <laughs> that you know like i I, you know i thought that the spot where you know not that i'm you know into this man i woman <laughs> violence stuff but like i did think that it was good character stuff where when daniel's um runs Joe into Jacobs knocking Lacey off the apron and then Jacobs feels horrible and that allows uh, Daniels and Joe to kind of do their thing in, in the ring while Jacobs is is tending to Lacey and then Lacey berates him to get back in the ring like all right I'm fine leave me alone go go in the match I thought all that stuff was like good character stuff I think Jacobs Jacobs's character is working really well at this point so I thought that the match was a weird mix of comedy and action but like I liked it I thought it yeah. was I thought it was short, I thought it was fun, I thought it was very entertaining, and I think that Jimmy
0: and Lacey were really good. Agreed. And so next we get an ad for rohvideos.com, one for the merch section of the Ring of Honor website, and then we get our main event. The Ring of Honor world title match, Brian Danielson successfully defends the title when he defeats Roderick Strong via pinfall in fifty-six minutes, five seconds after he reversed the stronghold into a cradle. So Matt, I'm going to let you go first on this, but a couple notes first that we should tell people. So first off, for people that don't, didn't own the DVD, this was a rare, but not totally infrequent, but fairly rare, this was a double DVD set for Ring of Honor. So this whole show's like well over four hours. This show was, if you were just watching this at home on DVD, you had watched about three hours of wrestling by the time they got to this. If you were watching um, this live in the building, this uh, the announcers even make a point to tell you this this match started right around midnight and it goes almost an hour so i know uh after we talk about the match brian danielson has a quote in his book i don't know if you have it matt but if not i can send it to you as the designated danielson reader but um yeah it, it, it's a it's a cra it's the other thing I, if there's anything else the show is remembered for it's probably just like the audacity of on the night of the dragon gate match these guys had to go out there at midnight and work almost an hour. I I, I know there's different opinions on this match. Matt, what do you think about this?
1: Well, first of all, I don't want to step on like whatever like plan you had for the order, but I'm sort of going to start with what Danielson said about how—
0: Oh, go, go, go. That's great. That's yeah, great. so I mean,
1: I mean, I wasn't going to read the whole quote, but I do have it right here, but, so I, I can do it. But basically, he didn't like the match because of how late it got into the ring. Um, what he says was, and I—let me pull it out right here— Our first show on Friday had more than a 1,000 people, and they seemed to really love it, with the exception of how long the show was. Gabe wanted me and Roderick Strong to tease an hour-long draw, but have me beat him right before the 60-minute time limit. It was a great idea, but the problem was that the show started at 8 p.m., and by the time Roderick and I went into the ring, it was already after midnight. The full show had already been going on for four hours. The crowd was tired, and I could see people leaving midway through our match. I couldn't help but think. I wish they would have done that for the Aries match. I'll let all of you go back and find the Testing the Limit episode to find out what that was referencing. Um, Yet we got through it, and the crowd gave us a polite applause after we wrestled for 55 minutes, ending the show at 1 a.m. All right, so here's my take on this. Uh, Brian Danielson is wrong about this match. Um, This match was fucking fantastic. Uh, That's my first thought of it. Um, In my opinion, the second best of all of his title defenses – Um, the only one of so far that we reviewed so far, not ever. Um, and the only one that I thought was better was his last match against Roderick Strong at Vendetta. Now, as far as the crowd, um, yeah, I mean, if you watch the do fixer versus blood generation match, you can tell this crowd had an upper level of volume that they did not reach for this match. But the idea that this mat, that this crowd was particularly subdued and quiet, doesn't come across on DVD to me at all. Go back and watch the Brian Danielson versus AJ Styles match from um Dissension, that that crowd was quieter than this. If you watch um some like the Brian Danielson against Steve Carino, that crowd was quieter than this. Brian Danielson against Austin Aries from Enter the Dragon, that crowd was quieter than this. Even some of the earlier Strong versus Danielson matches, uh, especially that first one, there were moments where the crowd was not so much louder than this. This was not an unusually quiet crowd. They were tired, definitely. But they were into this match, like, the whole time. Um, I really, really think that right from the beginning there was a loud dueling chant. You know, yes, like it they, they maybe didn't have the the fervor that it would have had if it was earlier in the night, but like they did a remarkable job of keeping the audience invested after a four hour show where they they went an hour and got into the ring at midnight. Um I I don't think this was as good as the Vendetta match because I don't think it had like the depth of character. But what I liked was they did something a little different. I feel like in the first two Danielson versus Strong matches, it was all about Danielson and Danielson establishing that new arrogant heelish champion character. And in some ways, he sort of ate up strong in those matches, like not in necessarily a negative way because, you know, those are um fantastic matches and if you go back and watch listen to our review of vendetta you know that match was a big deal for me like my number two match of 2005 my number one match of 2005 where both wrestlers were roh regulars um and this wasn't you know that but like i like that this match was a little bit more even it wasn't didn't go quite as deep into the danielson character building you know danielson's character was already established he didn't need to do that quite as much so there was just a little bit more even wrestling, you know. Um, Danielson, you know, he start, you know, they start out with, you know, with the wrestling, and you already see like with Strong's chops, like a big red handprint on Danielson's chest, and just like in the other two matches, he escapes every time Strong hits one of those chops, um, you know, and 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 stalls a little bit, you know, to get over the chops. There's this really incredible spot right at the beginning, first ten minutes, where danielson does this incredible feat of strength now i mentioned neck bridging before i feel like this match i don't know if you noticed this trevor was like peak danielson neck bridge yeah. like he did a lot of them in this match like and i you know he used to brag at this point about how long he could neck bridge and like he really showed off his neck bridging here so like he neck bridges in an, in you know there's there's a you know a knuckle lock where strong gets danielson down um he's neck bridging And Strong jumps on his knees, which is a pretty, you know, it's a spot that you see sometimes where a guy's neck bridging in a Greco-Roman knuckle lock. But Danielson, with Strong on top of him, bridges all the way up and sits up and monkey flips Strong. Like, that's unbelievable to be able to do. And, you know, Danielson's not a guy that's known for his, like, brute strength. Um.
0: So you know that, what sucks? It's like people – I was going to say people call down like, you know, oh, Danielson, like he doesn't look like – like that's one of those amazing feats of strength that like you don't get to show off very often. Like it's not like a muscle where everyone just looks and goes, oh, you're big. Like like I'd be wanting to do that all the time. Like, Matt, come over here. Stand on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me do this. <laughs>
1: exactly. Now that's not the last time Danielson does a neck bridge either. Um. Um. So like – there's there's one point where you know, and I think some people don't like this kind of stuff. Danielson starts obviously stalling and he's arguing with the fans and taunting them by saying he'll walk away to the back and then he actually does so. So Strong gets on the mic and is like, Come in, defend that belt you're proud you're so proud of, motherfucker. And like, you know, I think what people don't like is when you do stuff like that, you make it really obvious that you're going long. Um, but you know, it was like one little piece of character work. It took like a minute, so it didn't really bother me. But, you know Danielson is still trying to maintain the intensity cuz he does start slapping the crap out of Strong as soon as he comes back into the ring. And you know, there's there's a, a few spots where like Strong tries to do Danielson's own surfboard, the Romero special, but Danielson fights it off, showing he's one step ahead. And then Strong powers out of Danielson's own surfboard attempt, and then they they slow things down a little bit. Danielson finally takes over a little bit. Um, you know he dismantles strong with kicks knee drops holds they do a fun little sequence of reversing like japanese strangle hold like straight jacket type stuff and you know strong is hitting his his chops his stomps we see that daniel santa once again is bleeding from the chest like he did in the previous two matches um but like even you see the first 20 minutes like there's There's more just like wrestling. There's less of Danielson just like dominating, being a jerk, running away. There's some of that. You know, it's not like he doesn't do that, but it's not the overarching story of the match. Um, it's, it's much more, um, much more even. Um, there's, there's one spot where Danielson comes back from strong doing a chop. He does his backflip run up the turnbuckle but strong immediately follows with a kick gets a flurry of offense and finally gets the surfboard on but he has so much momentum on the surfboard that danielson like rolls back and both guys have their shoulders down so strong has to release it um and at this point leonard even notes what i noticed which was that neither guy has been able to get the advantage for more than a few minutes of a time at a time which is true it's like a lot of back and forth momentum ships which again is what makes this match different than the first two um, at one point, a fan calls Danielson Bob Backlund, so like Danielson again gets that twinkle in his eye, which you, he gets when he when a crowd says something that gives him an idea, and he does like an old school running atomic drop, which is a move that we rarely saw in two thousand six, and I'd say almost more rarely seen now. Can you think of anyone that regularly does a regular atomic drop nowadays? No,
0: I can't remember the last time I've seen an atomic drop in a major promotion. Not that I watch. Everything, but
1: well, now we know that Brian Danielson can do a perfectly good one, and he he f- follows that by saying Bob Backlund, huh? <laughs> um, so I, I definitely enjoyed that. Um, Danielson he does he works the abdominal stretch, which is something we've seen him do. On other recent matches, he does that thing where he grabs the top rope and like wiggles his fingers before, as he grabs it. And then eventually Sinclair catches him, kicks his arm, and strong tip tosses out of it. Classic, classic heel spot. But this time he actually defies expectations by getting strong right back in the abdominal stretch like a minute later. <laughs> you don't see that too often when, he, when the abdominal stretch get, gets stymied like that. Um, so like this is like the longest stretch so far, right before the 30-minute mark of Danielson – getting being in control and he gets to, actually gets the cattle mutilation on here and strong quickly makes the ropes and now strong tries to bridge out of a knuckle lock so danielson stands on strong's neck which is a very interesting twist on that spot um and then danielson milks being on the top rope for like four seconds before coming off with the diving headbutt which allows strong's to move and he hits a series of cradles for two and finally at 30 minutes he hits the cradle backbreaker for two So he's finally taken over and I think that's the first backbreaker of the match. So that follows the pattern of them having a lot of restraint waiting till like the 30 minute mark before strong starts hitting backbreakers. Um, that happened in the last match too. Um, so, so strong's in control now, hits a big top rope superplex to solidify his advantage. He locks in the stronghold and listen, if you're telling me this crowd is dead or tired, they are definitely reacting to this stronghold. And Danielson makes the ropes and then escapes to the outside. He's clutching his back, but Strong doesn't give him any space. He immediately leaps at him with a forearm off the off the apron, um, and then back in the ring, Danielson catches him. He hits a bunch of German suplexes, transitions right into the chicken wing. Strong makes the rope, so which is this is a pretty hot sequence. Thirty minutes in, they're making the crowd think. That the match is close to finishing, and even Prazak says this has to end soon. And, you know, again, the crowd is buying it, whatever you want to say about them being tired. But they slow it back down. Uh, Danielson starts targeting Strong's knee after Strong, like, hits his knee over the over the middle rope. He does some more neck bridges while tying up Strong's knee. He's like he does like one, he does an Indian deathlock, He does a neck bridge. Does a spinning toe hole, does a neck bridge. He's just showing off every neck bridge variation that he could possibly do here. And only Danielson could just like start a slow technical sequence 35 minutes into a match and have it make the match more exciting, but I thought it it did get more exciting here. Strong comes back with this like really insane gut-wrench backbreaker that looked brutal. But then he sells his knee, which he stupidly dropped uh, Danielson on even after it had been worked on for a while, which you think he could change it up and use the other knee. This is like one of the few flaws that I saw in this match, which was a few moments where I thought Strong acted kind of dumb, like doing – like using his bad (laughs) knee for a backbreaker, which I don't think it – like you're dropping them on the knee, so I don't think it really matters which one you – I don't know. But anyway – Danielson, he comes right back with a figure four and Strong escapes a dragon suplex, rolls up Danielson for two, and then Danielson goes right back um, after the knee. Um, eventually, um, Danielson locks on his own Boston Crab, which it's not a bad Boston Crab, but it looks awkward because you never see Danielson doing that hold. Like, it's, it's always fun to watch these Danielson matches, and I feel like every long Danielson match, he does another move that you don't see him do in other matches. And I think the Boston Crab is one of them. You, don't, you really don't see that very often. Um, and what I thought was a really cool spot – I don't know if you remember that this was a callback to the Vendetta match. Um, Danielson goes for a roaring forearm and Strong does the Fujiwara armbar and then goes right into the cattle mutilation, which gets a really big pop. But also Danielson did that in reverse at the Vendetta match where he took the Fujiwara armbar right into the cattle mutilation. But Strong cannot hold it for very long because he does not have the magical bridging power of Brian Danielson. So I don't know if that was intentional, but it just it stood out to me. Like Danielson could bridge all night long. Roderick Strong cannot neck bridge all night long. Um, so they struggle over a suplex over the over the top rope, and Strong suplexes Danielson to the floor, as Gabe, I assume, tells Prazak to go after some quote unquote Wise asses heckling the match by saying those same people will enjoy John Cena's match on Sunday, so this was definitely an era where it was cool to bash Cena, I guess. But here's the thing: this was recorded, like the uh, the audio was recorded after that WrestleMania, and I thought most people agreed that Cena versus Triple H was a good match. So felt petty, but I guess that was the cool thing to do there. Um, You know, and you obviously it's totally like we mentioned recently. Gabe's voice saying, "I love how Ring of Honor fans police themselves." Yeah,
0: (laughs) you know (laughs) that's always always the tell right there.
1: Yeah, always the tell right there. Um, So they do the spot where Strong tries to chop Danielson against the ring post, and this is Strong being dumb part two. Anytime you do the "I'm going to chop you against the ring post," you look dumb because multiple times now we've had the opponent duck, and Strong chops the ring post. Which happened again here. So now Danielson – And by the
0: way, it, it happened in the same place because uh, reading reviews after, I was reminded – the last time I think it happened to him was when he beat Matt Hardy in yep. Chicago.
1: Yep. The, 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 I the, think the, you can
0: even hear a fan like reference Matt Hardy after he chops the post.
1: <laughs> Chicago ring posts are strong as Achilles' heel. Um, <laughs> so now Danielson goes after Strong's head and wrist, like I said, you know. He also seems to have a busted lip himself at this point, because this was a very brutal match. Like, I haven't mentioned that enough, but, like, all the chops, all the strikes, very hard hitting. But, you know, Danielson gets this crazy, like, wrist arm hold where he, like, bends Strong's wrist back, which had to hurt really bad, even if Strong's wrist and hand wasn't already injured. And he yells, he yells at him, tap out to a wrestler!
0: um which i just su- tap out to a wrist lock
1: oh i thought he said tap out to a wrestler okay no
0: because he, he he's like he's like come on tap out to a wrist lock like he like he's like i've hurt your wrist so i'm gonna embarrass you by making you tap out
1: that makes more sense and is a much better line <laughs> um um so so daniels he stomps on strong's wrist even after strong grabs the rope so he's being heelish here you know, he comes, uh, he comes with this like chop kick combo, which actually reminds me of the way he wrestles in 2022, where he does the chop followed by the kick, followed by the chop, followed by the kick. That's much more of a later Danielson thing, but he's doing it here. Um, he eventually gloats one time too many with a bunch of slaps, and eventually he meets a series of left-handed chops by Strong. So unlike with the knee, Strong at least knows enough not to use the bad hand against Danielson. Um, then, uh, they're fighting on the outside, Strong charges at Danielson against the guardrail, and Danielson moves and sends Strong over the top, over the guardrail, into the front row. So he goes back into the ring, and, like, you figure he's about to do the big dive into the crowd, but for some reason, and I think this is, like, one of my other big flaws in the match, Strong comes back over the guardrail, and Danielson just gives him a kick, which is supposed to send him, you know, back into the crowd, but it doesn't like it. Knocks strong into the guardrail, and then it just looks like strong is just like voluntarily crawling over into the <laughs> front row. Like it was very awkward. Um, takes the mess down a little bit for me, but of course that's so Danielson can then finally hit the springboard dive into the front row, which the crowd loves. Danielson's back in, hits the missile drop kick, um, and then they 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 get into like the last. 10 minutes of the match with a bunch of big moves strong hits kicks out of a crucifix danielson goes for the knockout elbows like the finish of the uh the last match and actually right about the same length of time as the finish of the last match like almost 50 minutes in but strong picks him up into the double knees and then sells his knees big so he can't follow up then he hits two sick kicks followed by the gibson driver danielson kicks out for a near fall that i would say a lot of the crowd actually bought then Strong hits two half Nelson backbreakers and a torture act backbreaker, continues to sell the knee, and Danielson kicks out after a delayed cover. Um Strong he struggles to get Danielson into the stronghold, and Danielson slowly crawls to the rope and he makes it as Strong crumples. And then finally at the 50-minute mark, Danielson hits the belly-to-back superplex, gets a two-count, locks on the cattle mutilation. And he keeps rolling Strong back into the center and locking the, move, the hold back on. But eventually, Strong does make the bottom rope after a long struggle. Um, but Danielson's tenacious. He goes for the hold one more time, but then transitions into kneeing Strong in the head, and they end up with like a big forearm exchange in the center. Danielson hits a roaring forearm right into a dragon suplex, right into the chicken wing, and there's a big pop when Strong makes the rope there. Then, you know... More, more big spots. Danielson's eye seems to have a cut above it. Strong hits a super, a super double knees off the top rope, which I think is one of the big spots he used right before he made Gibson tap out in their match. Um, and at that point, Cruz announces that there's only five minutes left in the time limit. And we get the This is Awesome Chan at this point. Um, Strong locks in the stronghold. The crowd's going nuts. Danielson reverses it into a deep cradle and gets the sudden win. And, I think even though the crowd was rooting for strong, unlike in their previous two matches, the crowd actually popped for this finish, whereas in their last two matches, the finishes were both like so unusual that the crowd actually booed. This time the crowd popped. Um I thought the match was epic. I think it's one of the best ROH title matches in a really long time. Um, I still say it's Danielson's second best match up to this point in his title reign. And listen, I think considering the length, the crowd was hot here. Like... They, they, I think to me, to me, this is an underrated gem of a match. People don't talk about it enough. I, I really love it. I loved it when I first saw it. I haven't seen it in many, many years. And to me, it held up um, because I I think it told a good story and it was just very entertaining the whole way through. I, I think they were really impressive that they were able to do this with such a late um, crowd and such a long show. And, you know, I believe Danielson, when he says he saw people leaving, um, you know, it was a long show, but the people that stayed were into this match. I don't care what anyone says.
0: Um, I, let, me, let me preface this by saying I thought this was a great match. This is also my least favorite of the Danielson Strong trilogy, um, but I, I, I'm on the record as I'm a crazy person who whose favorite of the trilogy is the first match from This Means War, but again, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I have a personal kind of connection with that match. Um, I think that's an important point in the career of one of my favorite wrestlers ever, and I just, I love the way he realizes things in that match. Anyway, but you can listen to that episode to hear me gush about that match, but um, I thought this was a great match, but the one that I would say is, well, I can say a lot of things, but... I feel like the other two matches had their own vibe that comes just from the way those two work against each other, where this match, it still has a lot of that same vibe, but it also just kind of feels like a 60 minute match. You kind of touched on this a little bit where like there are like the stalling and stuff, and I'm not even hating the stalling, but I just feel like there are certain things that are smart to do in a 60 minute match that you kind of almost have to do to pace the match out, both for the fans and for your own cardio. And in a way, it, it kind of makes a lot of 60-minute matches feel kind of similar. And so rather than feel like, oh, like the evolution of these two guys, it's more like, oh, it's their version of a 60-minute match, even though it wasn't quite 60 minutes. But like, for example, I can give examples of, um first off, like you mentioned, Brian kind of clearly taking any kind of example he has to like stall or introduce something new. So like, so he doesn't do it too much for like you know the walking to the back when he gets into it with a fan or even the bob back and stuff like and it's almost reminds me of like the joe punk matches where we covered on those in their shooter view samoa joe and cm punk did it together they mentioned like that second hour long draw like they were so grateful whenever some fan did something they could riff on it was just like oh like we're running out of ideas like anything we can riff on to help us stretch this out is good but more than that it was just like Like the pacing right from the start, you can tell it's going to be very long or even like the normally matches have this certain um, structure, right? Where it's slow beginning. And then you kind of go to this mid tier offense and then you go to the final hot section at the end. And you know, you you, you kind of, with a 60-minute match, you kind of have a problem because it's the idea of, all right, if you want to just stretch out all three sections of the match, you might have, like, a 30-minute slow beginning, which you're just going to lose the crowd, so you can't do that. But at the same time, if you just do, like, a 10-minute slow beginning, you can't do, like, 50 minutes of really hot action because you'll burn out the crowd and you just don't have that in you. And I think what these guys do is something I've seen in other 60-minute matches, which is incredibly smart. But, again, it's something I've seen in a lot of 60-minute matches where – If you watch this match, Danielson and Strong will do the slow beginning, and then the match starts to build up, and then Strong hurts his knee at some point in the match. And so that allows Danielson to kind of slow it back down again for a while by working on just the knee. Then the match builds back up again. Then Strong hurts his his hand, chopping the post. And that allows Danielson to slow it back down again for just a little while with the stuff like tap out to a wrist lock and stuff. So it's a very smart way of it's like, We have excuses to bring the match down for a little bit just to kind of extend the match. And I think this match is actually is really good. You watch this match. They, again, about doing what I've seen in other good, like, long matches, the rhythm of slow, slow, and then we do a spot to kind of wake you up a bit. And then slow, slow. And this match is fun the whole way through, but, like, they're good about... Like Roderick Strong, they do not hold back on the chops. He chops, like you mentioned, Danielson very early on the match, one chop, and it's already like a handprint on Danielson's chest and stuff like that. Like they're good about, they don't save every big move for the very end. Like Danielson's doing the flying top rope head, but I think like 30 minutes into a nearly hour long match. So I think they do a good job of of kind of spacing everything out. So it, you know, you always get these little bumps up to kind of keep the crowd engaged over this long match. But I just think I the other two matches were better. One thing I do disagree with you with, well, may not disagree, but you thought this was a lot more even for Strong and Danielson. I still felt like maybe this was Strong's most competitive match, but I still felt like Danielson ate him up a bit. Like, particularly at the end where... This is kind of weird to say, but for a 56 minute match, I actually felt like they could have given Strong like another one or two minutes of near falls. Cause I felt like right near the end, the crowd was really going pretty damn hot. It, they had reached like the high point of the match. And I felt like the crowd would have gone nuts for another minute. Like I felt like Strong could have done more, could have hit another minute of near falls. And, um, they did. And that brings me to one of my other kind of quibbles with this match, which is, the whole story of this match is, like Danielson said in the book, and like the newsletters would say, this match was supposed to educate the fans that a match could go close to 60 minutes but not be a draw, which when you, on the surface is a really smart idea, knowing especially, and Gabe probably had this in his head this time, that Danielson would be going to three 60-minute draws later in the year. The idea if we need a match like this, to kind of teach the fans that, like, just because a match goes fifty minutes or more doesn't mean you're not going to see a finish. We need a match like this. That's very smart. Doing it on this night, and I agree with you that that Danielson greatly oversold how not into it the crowd was because they were into it quite. A, I thought surprisingly for a crowd this late in the night uh, after seeing this much wrestling. But I do part of me wonders. Like again, thinking back to comparing this to Joe and Punk's trilogy. I know Joe and Punk's whole thing was the idea of everyone in the third match thinks we're going to go long, like 60 minutes or more. So instead, we're going to go half that – like we're going to go do like a sprint. And part of me wonders if on this particular night with the crowd that had been up that late and knowing how hot the crowd was for the key moments of this match, like is there an alternate world where these guys just go 20 minutes and just go balls to the wall and it's just – the crowd goes away going – Especially because I feel like this was and another thing you kind of touched on, which is I think this was a crowd on this night that did think Strong could win. Like, the crowd's chanting at the start of the match, like, next world champ for Strong. They're really buying into the near falls in a way that they haven't for a lot of Danielson title defenses so far. Like, I feel like if you just did 20 minutes and just did hot near falls for, like, the last six or seven, you could have just had a crowd being molten hot thinking, oh, shit, like, Strong's going to win tonight. And you get some of that here. But instead, you know, you're getting this match that it's 50 minutes starting at midnight, 56 minutes, because you just decided this has to be the night we tell, we teach fans that, you know, it's not always a draw. But, I, I you know, all of that to say, this match is great, and I think it's great for the same reasons those other matches were great. I just happen to think those matches were better. I think Danielson, there's something – I think he was even on a new high in terms of his personality. There's something about wrestling Ronald Strong where – He is – Danielson is never a bigger prick and never more of a bully and more kind of dominant than when he wrestles Strong, unless it's like a low-level guy or Jack Evans. Like there's something about Strong that just brings it out about Danielson. I don't know. The other – one other thing I'd like to mention is if they were going for this idea of let's make people think it's a 60-minute draw but then not be – I wish they would have done the time cues every 10 minutes to the best of my hearing. They only do the time cue for the final five minute minutes. And it's like, you can say, Oh, the time cues tip people off. That's going to be a long match or a draw. But it's like, that was kind of the point of this match. And the way they wrestled to me early on from the first few minutes, you knew this match was going to go long. So why not do that? And also why not do it right to the last minute? Like, for more drama, you could have wrestled this. They were already wrestling 56 minutes. Why not add an extra three minutes and wrestle in like a one minute count in the final countdown? Have Danielson, no pun intended, win. I think that would have been neat. Um, overall though, I thought this was a great match. But I, for me, I know my ranking would be completely different. I think the matches are, I would rank them in chronological order. The first match is the best, second match is the second best, third match is the third. And I know you just basically just said vendetta, the second match is the best then this second, then the first match worse. But you can't go wrong with any of these matches, I don't think.
1: Yeah, like, so for some of, like, your your quibbles, I guess what I would say is as far as, like, what if they had done the the sprint instead? It's like, well, they were trying to educate, like you said, and, like, I guess the reason why I wouldn't agree with you is because this worked, you know? Like, I, it did educate the crowd, and, like, it got over. This, this match was great as it was. So, like, I don't think it needed... I don't think it needed those real improvements. I guess is what is what I would say. I guess the other big disagreement I would have with you. I really don't think Danielson ate up strong. I think Strong looked stronger, pun no pun intended, um, in this match than he did in the other ones, and I think he came way better for it. And I also don't think that the stalling was that much. Like there were a few like obvious moments of stalling that I mentioned. But I don't think they did a ton of stuff. It wasn't like that first Joe no. versus Punk match where it was like, all right, they're they're just having some fun out there to kill time. It was much more like the second Joe versus Punk match, not in terms of necessarily as good, but in terms of like the amount of stalling they did, which you know Joe Punk 2 had some, but just wasn't as over the top and obvious.
0: No, and I agree that they didn't have a ton of stalling here. Uh, I was just more putting that into kind of back up my point of the idea of there's a lot of things you see in a 60 minute match that kind of all like a lot of 60 minute matches feel the same in certain ways and that's one of them you know not that just that but like the pacing stuff I talked about but again I think all that stuff is really smart and I think these guys do it as well as about anyone can do it like like I I thought the even the stalling they did was fun and in, you know with the even like the little back stuff was fun which I don't would even really call stalling necessarily but like or even like the other ways I talked about where you could slow the match down I thought Daniels and does that really, really well? But yeah, it that, 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 ba-
1: that backland thing is something that Danielson would have done in a twenty-minute match. You know?
0: Yeah, no, you know, you're right. Um,
1: um, the, the, the other question I have for you is: All right, so I see that we have different orders of the strong uh, Danielson matches. Here's my question, off the top of your head, because I know you know you know would always remember everything. Off the top of your head, is there a Danielson title defense prior to March thirty first, two thousand six? that you thought was better than this particular match besides the strong matches?
0: Oh, uh, uh, my memory is so bad, but I don't think so. Cause let's say, okay, the AJ Styles match, not as good as this, the Chris hero match, not as good as this. Austin Aries match not as good as this. Raven Shelly, I mean Shelly not as good as this. I wouldn't say even the Marufuji match is as good as this.
1: I'd say I'd say Rave would probably be my like one of my favorite non-strong title defenses, and I don't think I it was as good as this.
0: I would go with you. I would I would rank these as the top three, and then Rave number four. I would say.
1: Yeah, off, For, at least well, off top my head. So yeah. yeah. Yes. 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 So of, of what we've seen so far, the this, the the title reign has a long way to go.
0: Yeah. Like even like, you know, there's, yeah, everything here, like all of Danielson's title defenses have been at least pretty darn good. But yeah, like stuff like Sabin or Steve Carino, like it's not on the level of these, of any of these. Like, right. no, I completely agree there.
1: Strong was definitely like the top opponent of Danielson during the first half of his title reign by far
0: i mean I, I think there's also a reason people kind of remember like I think people will will pick their favorite of the, of the latter two like I think i'm on a on a limb on saying the first one's the best, but like I think there's a reason people kind of think of these matches as kind of like a collective chunk just because the quality across all of them was so good,
1: yeah to where they, it's almost they, they, like they had great chemistry,
0: yeah, like you don't like one doesn't stick out even even in this even in the sense of um like the Joe punk matches where, like, the second two are clearly on a level above the others. You could say that about these, you know, I think a lot of people would, but I think there's less of a differentiator, just because it's just like, it's just such a good, it's just such a good stretch from the very first time they wrestled in a big singles match all the way through the trilogy, like, which these guys just had chemistry, right, from the the get-go.
1: And it'll be fun to watch Danielson now transition to his next top rival, which is going to be Nigel McGuinness.
0: Yeah, and that is some of my favorite stuff, but, uh, The observer Dave wrote in praising this match. Ring of Honor is still a niche product in that you could not successfully start your main event at 11:45 p.m. after going nearly four hours on the show and then start slow and build to a 56-minute main event with very few leaving and everyone into it by the end. So there you got Dave even disagreeing with Danielson. Well, we've we've established before Matt that um, Danielson's memory in the book isn't like we've caught a couple like not that he's intending to lie but i know there's been a couple dates or details that he's like we we've caught that have not been correct so maybe his memory is just you know how wrestlers can be hard on themselves it's like he saw three people walk to the bat outside he's like oh shit they're all leaving because i agree that i think he greatly overstated that
1: yeah i mean you'd have to ask someone who was there um but um but yeah, I mean, it, it didn't seem. I mean, it certainly wasn't obvious that the crowd was thinning out. I'm sure some people left. It was late, but like, I, I doubt that it was an overwhelming amount of
0: people. So uh, Meltzer continues. I think as an idea, it's a bad one. Even though having uh, doing the long match, even though the Brian Dyson versus Roderick Strong match was four and a quarter stars and technically excellent, but they are very lucky that they have the audience they do because most crowds would have gone home. So, um. And then, but, but, but
1: they do have the audience that they do, so it's not a bad idea.
0: <laughs> and the other thing we should mention, too, like, like you mentioned, is uh, Danielson really did get beat up in this match with the chops, and then he got the bloody mouth, and then the cut near his eye. And Dave in The Observer says, Brian Danielson's chest was blistered from all the Robert Strong chops. He also suffered a black eye in that match, so that'll be something to look out for for the next night, because I forget – Like, does he have, like, a noticeable black eye against Lance Storm? I guess we'll have to to see. Yeah,
1: he has another big match right the next day, and so does Strong. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, and uh, Matt, here comes my Wade thing. It's not the biggest thing, but I just – it's one of those Wade things where it's just one of those things that makes you go, huh? So this is Wade on Brian Danielson. Wade Keller goes, Brian Danielson doesn't do moves and holds. He does one long complex move slash hold. Hmm. It's like
1: – No, he, not true. He does moves yeah, and he, holds. He does
0: a lot of moves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like he's I not, said like I said about Wade, analysis, no matter what you think of, agree or not, it's always weird.
0: Yeah. Like that's why like I would say you could actually probably better apply that to like say a Zack Sabre Jr. take because he chains so much together, right? So you could yeah. say, OK, he's like going from one thing to the other. Danielson – is a wrestler? He does moves. And he did an atomic he drop?
1: Was... Did a bunch of suplexes. Yeah, you know, did a, does a roaring four. Yeah, does a lot of moves. The
0: entire match was the atomic drop match. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: One really long, slow <laughs> atomic drop. Very impressive.
0: At one point in the commentary during this match, Gabe interrupted to announce that uh, Lance Storm will be wrestling the winner of this match tomorrow night. So, which I'm just pointing out because that will come into play in a few moments. But they're acting like they just booked the Lance Storm match in the middle of this match. Um, Let me just say, I'm just looking through my notes. Did I miss anything else? You mentioned the the Bob Backwood stuff. That was great. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, No. No, we covered everything, so finally. Yeah, I, after, I,
1: I, I, lo- I love that you're so thorough, Trevor. Like, wait, is there any other spot that I didn't mention in the match that well, we just spent 25 notable, minutes talking to give about? give these
0: guys their due. Okay. <laughs> um, after the match, uh, Prezak talks about how it's 12.45 a.m., and these fans just saw nearly five hours of wrestling, which I wrote in my notes about. In 2022, that seems quaint. Like, not that that still wouldn't yeah. be a long show or a late night today, but, I mean, Matt, I think you would know as well as anybody, like, wrestling shows these days can go long and go late, like... It, it, yeah, it,
1: especially, especially if the show is called Wrestlemania or the company is called AEW. Those <laughs> shows can go extremely long.
0: But I think that's another sign of the times, because, like, back then, like, a show going four hours or longer, other than if it was like IWA Mid-South, people were like, holy crap, like, this is too long, this is insane. And nowadays, like, people, for a huge show... Like, five hours, people are just like, yeah, this is long, but, like, it happens. But
1: people do yeah. – I mean, listen, people still complain that those are They too complain,
0: long. but they don't act like this is some crazy new tri- – like, it's, it's it happens enough now that people are just like, well, I guess it's going to happen. Like, settle in.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, this was a Friday rather than a Saturday, which means a lot of people came from work, which means that people are more tired. Like, on a Saturday night, it's less crazy than on a, a Friday night, and obviously, like, I was at – grand slam uh 2022 just a, a week before recording this or a couple of weeks before recording this and yeah that show was went incredibly late on a on a weeknight and it was very very hard it's very tiring <laughs> i had been up since like six thirty in the morning and the show ended at twelve thirty, and so i'm just picturing it and like that show they did a pretty good job of like keeping the crowd into it throughout like the second you know taping but you know they didn't have a big like time main event that they had to get into the ring and i don't know that they could have had a crowd even as hot as this ROH crowd for an hour long main event um it's it, it was it was impressive that Danielson and Strong were able to do that
0: you know i absolutely i agree i was just going to mention i know on the honorable mention podcast episode they did on this show they mentioned that uh, The people in charge of the building that typically clean up after the shows were – they were suggesting that maybe they were getting a little frustrated that the show was going into 1 a.m. because they still had to wait around to clean up the show after it was done. Yeah, it sucks for the people that work there obviously for sure. Yeah. Yeah. so anyway, um a lot of fans stick around to clap and watch Brian and Roderick shake hands, which Brian does after some hesitancy. But you can also see a bunch of people making an immediate beeline to get the hell out of there because it's later and the show has been so long. So I, I would say actually, again, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to tell. You, we don't get a great shot of everyone in the crowd. But it seemed like a lot of people stick around. But it definitely did seem like it was one of those shows where the second the match is over, a, a, bu- a probably a third of the crowd or half of the crowd, it seemed like everyone except in the few first few rows was like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Like yeah, it, it's yeah, late.
1: Yeah. yeah, I don't want to. Um, we don't want to fall asleep on the drive home.
0: Yeah, yeah. To me, that was the one negative. Was the final image uh, in the ring is like the house lights are immediately on because they're probably like get those house lights on. We gotta clean this shit up. You can just see, see people streaming out as like Brian and Rod are trying to do this great like you know you've earned my respect finally moment, and you can just see people just forming lines to get the hell out of there. But, um. Next, we go to Lance Storm somewhere where he congratulates Brian on winning another one. Storm says he's here to win the Ring of Honor title, and he's been training for 10 months for this one match.
1: And yet he he waited for the day before to decide he actually wanted to do it.
0: Exactly. All the Ring of Honor storylines for has been like Storms on the fence and watching Ring of Honor, he's slowly getting one over and Gabe's announcing during the middle of the main event that he's going to wrestle finally and then Lance Storms here is just like, Yeah, I've been trying for this match for ten months.
1: Like, it's it's interesting because like if you watch the promo, the short promos that he cut on Best in the World, Dragon Gate Challenge and this I think he cut all he shot all those promos like just like in sequential order right at the yeah, same time Yeah,
0: the, the same spot same close he's clearly yeah. just they asked him cut cut like five of these and yeah
1: which is like cut like oh i'm thinking about it Oom, i'm really thinking about it oh uh, i'm doing it <laughs> like that, that was that was it like but also i've been training for 10 months just in case
0: like, that would even mean that predates, like, when you think about the promo that started this all, when Lance Storm came out for that one show, and then Daniel's yeah, done Cage the in-ring thing. Yeah, I mean, even that show was not ten months, and the, the whole thrust of that was Lance Storm going out of his way to be like, I don't know if I'll ever wrestle again, but if I did, maybe you'd be the guy. Yeah, that was, just, now,
1: that was just three months earlier.
0: Yeah, yeah I like, Four months, I guess. But yeah. For ten months. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, so the storyline is Lance Storm's an awful liar. That, that, that's what we're getting. Um and then finally, on our last segment, we cut to Dave Prezak backstage where he's found Colt Cabana. Prezak says he's never seen Colt like this. Colt just mother's homicide. It's got to end. And he walks away as Prezak calls after him. We get our usual for the Milestone series to be continued graphic. That is the end of the show. That was Super of honor, which was, again, like probably four and a quarter hours of pro wrestling. Uh, basically a regular length show with an entire almost hour long match added to it. Um, but it's always hard to kind of review. I find shows there for something hours because like the quality varies a bit more. Like this is, a, this is let's go out without saying it's a must watch show. It, it is one of the most important matches shows in ring of honor history. One of the biggest shows they ever ran of the gay era of the silken era. Um, you know, one of the most important matches and another great match on top of that all, all sets the WrestleMania weekend trend, all sorts of things. But if we just talk about like watching it from the ground up, there's some good stuff on the like it's there's a lot of good stuff on the show, but there are like in for a four and a quarter hour watch, like there are moments where you'll be like, eh, that didn't have to be on the show. Like the whole opening cornet stuff, or like like it, it is not a perfect show. There's a world where they edited this down to three hours where maybe it's a perfect show. But it is still a great show. That's a must-watch. I would say.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you say must-watch, like, does everyone who puts it on need to watch the whole thing? Like, no, no. you know, you, you really like. There's three things on it that I would say are must-watch or close to it, which are the uh the the Generation Next tag team match, the Do Fixer Blood Generation match, and the main and event. the first blood match. Yeah, the blood- <laughs> <laughs> and, and the main and the main event. There's other stuff that's could, you could enjoy watching, right? Like, like the first blood match and, uh, you know, and the Joe three way and, and maybe, maybe even the embassy match if you, if you liked it. Um, but, you know, there is definitely some filler on there. There's some boring stuff. You know, there's that opening promo, which I thought was pretty rotten. Um, so it's not, yeah, like it's not perfect. It actually reminds me, um, more than any other show we've done, of like a modern age AEW pay-per-view that goes forever, where it's like, you know, there's downs, there's, you know, down points on this, there's up points, but like at the end, you, there's at least a couple things on that show that are just like so freaking fantastic that you're like, this was worth spending the time to watch. And I, you know, this was, I think, that on another level in terms of you know, I think just two absolutely incredible matches, one being like one of the most influential matches in modern history. And so, like, yeah, it's a special show. It clearly started a trend. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see the next night's version, which has the bigger crowd, the more tightly packed with big matches, I would say. More blow offs, um, probably a hotter crowd because it's Saturday um but without those like two all-time epics that you got here. So it's uh th- that'll definitely be an interesting comparison.
0: Yeah, that that'll be really exciting and uh yeah, so for plugs we got uh through the years at gmail.com that is our email if you want to reach us t h r o h. We're also on YouTube if that's the way you want to listen to the show. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. Our Twitter would be at Trevor Dame is my Twitter and at Mayor MGF for Matt is his Twitter. Uh, next time on the show, we will be covering better than our best, the final third of the Triple Shot uh, I mean, the title tells you what Ring of Honor thinks of it. It is remembered as one of the greatest Ring of Honor shows in history. Lance Storm versus Brian Danielson, more Dragon Gate involvement, the end finally of the homicide, Chris, I mean, homicide uh, Colt Cabana feud, tons of stuff on that show. It's going to be another. I mean, we're just in the streak where it's just big show after big show. This is this is the days of milk and honey for through the years. So, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.